Oh, oh, oh. 
Wednesday morning, five minutes after 6 a.m. Welcome to a JM in the AM broadcast for August the 7th, the uh, sixth day in the month of uh, Menachem Av. Uh, it is the sixth day of the nine days, or in this case, the uh, the ten days, because the uh, observance of Tisha B'Av will be on Sunday, the 10th of Av. The year, of course, is 5779. We begin our uh, spoken word nine days portion of this Wednesday with Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture from uh, many, many years ago about the Six-Day War, the Six-Day War of 1967. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture information available at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. Here he is at JM in the AM. Probably the most uh, dramatic event in recent Jewish history, certainly uh, uh, ranking as uh, one of the most emotional experiences that the Jewish people have had, has been the uh, Battle of the Six-Day War. The backdrop to the event uh, is complicated. But the basic backdrop of the event was that Nasser, in his attempt to unify the Arabs, in his attempt to uh, achieve his goal of pan-Arabism under his domination and under the domination of Egypt, ran into many great problems, most of them with the Arabs, who were not willing to be his uh, client subjects. He was engaged in a uh, bitter uh, civil war in Yemen, in which the Saudi Arabian royalists uh, supported uh, the uh, royalists in Yemen against uh, Nasser and the Soviet-backed insurgents. And it was a quicksand. It was a morass. Uh, Over 50,000 Egyptian troops were involved. It was, as we have unfortunately come to learn, Another example of a larger power getting involved in a uh, war that they could not win. It's much the effect that the United States had in Vietnam and that uh, the Soviet Union is having in Afghanistan. The larger power on paper certainly should be able to win and prevail very easily, but it doesn't turn out that way. And uh, Nasser had a uh, faltering economy. He was... uh, He had bankrupted Egypt. He had mortgaged the entire Egyptian cotton crop to Russia to pay for armaments. He was badly overextended. He was in a war in Yemen that he couldn't win. And he sought, therefore, a shortcut that would allow him to achieve all of his goals in one fell swoop. And that shortcut naturally had to do with the state of Israel. 
namely with the destruction of the state of Israel. But if he could mount a victory over the Jews, then he would certainly become the hero of the Arab world, the leader of the Arab world. He is, uh, his lifelong ambition of domination could be achieved. Now, Nasser had many enemies in the Arab world, foremost of whom was King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, they called each other the most vile names imaginable, but in the history of the world, calling each other names doesn't necessarily uh, prevent, uh, certainly in the Arab world, it doesn't prevent the, uh, the brotherly embrace and the kiss of alliance. He also uh, was not on very good terms with Syria. Syria had at one time in the early 1960s been a part of Egypt in a... Uh, in an impossible marriage called the United Arab Republic. And uh, Syria had broken away finally from Nasser's embrace. And the military government that was installed in Syria was not anxious to do Nasser's bidding. Nevertheless, Nasser was the consummate uh, politician, uh, diplomat, wheeler-dealer. And he, uh, as early as 1965, had in mind that he was going to somehow deal a death blow to the state of Israel, which would uh, forever immortalize him in the Arab world and temporarily at least give him domination over the Arab world. It would eclipse the Saudis. It would give him a chance. Egypt is a country with a lot of, a lot of people and little resources, and Saudi Arabia is a country with little people and a lot of resources. You know, your brains and my beauty, and we have an unbeatable combination. All of that played a role in the coming of the Six-Day War. Another role was also played by Russia. Russia always has its own motives, and most of the time they are sinister. It was at the beginning of this time, beginning in 1965, that the first trickle of emigration of Jews from Russia began to occur. And Jews were let out of Russia. Most of them turned up in Israel. And, uh, in fact, uh, it was used by Russia as a means of blackmail against its Arab clients. Uh, many a time it was said to the Arabs that if you don't follow the Russian line and if you uh, abandon us and you want to go with the West, and then there was another three or 400,000 Russian Jews whom we will allow to go to Israel. And uh, since the Russian Jews initially who came to Israel were of a very high caliber uh, intellectually and technologically speaking, uh, the Arabs saw it as a terrible threat. And this was a, uh, a type of blackmail that was uh, very effective. In order to keep the blackmail going, though, Russia had to let out some Jews to keep the threat effective. And therefore, what Russia did was uh, begin small-scale immigration into Israel of Russian Jews under the guise of reuniting families, all sorts of things. Now, Russia and Israel then had diplomatic relations in 1965. Russia had broken off diplomatic relations once before with Israel, but it restored them in the early 1960s. And this uh, relationship between Russia and Israel was always a strained and a difficult one. 
And at the heart of the matter was the issue of the Russian Jews, whether or not they would be allowed free immigration, whether in substantial numbers they would be allowed to come to Israel. Russia also sold arms to the Arabs, to Egypt, to Syria. Jordan always purchased its arms from the West, from England and the United States. Russia sold enormous amount of arms, and Russia sold the most modern and sophisticated equipment. And in order to enable the Egyptians to assimilate that equipment and use it well, Russia sent along advisors. And at one time, Russia had as many as 25,000 military advisors in Russia. There was an, in Egypt, there was an entire Russian colony outside of Cairo. And uh, they were not well liked either by the Egyptian people or the Egyptian army, but they served the purpose. They trained the Egyptian army in the use of these weapons. Advanced MiG fighters, uh, Russian tanks, the latest tanks, many of them were tanks that were even the Warsaw Pact nations at that time did not have in their arsenal. And artillery. And it was tra they were trained in Egyptian, and the Egyptians were trained in Russian military tactics as well. And uh, beginning in 1965, Nasser had a two-year goal of bringing the Egyptian army up to a point where he felt convinced that they would be able to overcome the Israelis. In terms of numbers and in terms of guns and armament, the advantage was all on the side of the Egyptians. Add to that the uh, fact that Israel had a hard time getting arms in the world. The United States then was in the midst of one of its uh, pious periods when it embargoed arms sales to the Middle East to all sides. Uh, as a practical matter, it meant that Israel couldn't get any arms because the Arabs were getting their arms from Russia without any problems. Uh, England did sell to Israel. Israel was able to buy chieftain tanks and centurion tanks. England did not sell them the latest models, but the Israelis renovated them. The Israelis took and put on uh, better guns. They simplified the tanks. Uh, the system uh, so far in Israel has been to make things simpler and less complicated because in desert warfare and sand warfare, all of the complicated uh, uh, computer uh, type of technology which exists on war machines gets clogged with sand and it becomes useless. And therefore, uh, relatively speaking, the more simple the better. Today the situation has changed because of the technology and uh, there's no such thing as a simple weapon anymore. But in the 1960s the Israelis were able to purchase these types of tanks from England and to renovate them. They also had some light tanks that they bought from France, AMX tanks, which uh, were little more than training tanks. But Israel struck a deal, and uh, that's to the credit of Shimon Peres, that he's the man who negotiated the deal. They struck a deal with France. For various reasons, de Gaulle, at the beginning of his regime, was uh, not pro-Israel, but he was against the Arabs. Eventually, his good sense would get hold of him, and he would become, uh, he would say that the French uh, national interest required that it be on the side of the Arabs. But he uh, initially agreed to a series of arms deals which built up the Israeli army and especially the Israeli Air Force. Israel was able to 
purchased from France three types of planes. One was called the Fuga Magistar, which was a small training jet that nobody else in the world ever used for combat, but the Israelis would use it for close support combat and tank warfare. It was a one-seater, small, rather slow jet. The second jet that they bought was a Mystère. A Mystère was a bomber, French bomber. And the third uh, plane that they bought was the famous Mirage, which today still, in its updated version, is the mainstay of the French uh, Air Force. Uh, the company that produced these planes was owned by a Jew, not much of a Jew. Uh, in fact, later in life, he even converted. He became a Roman Catholic, but at this time he was a Jew, and uh, he uh, received a license from the French government, and he sold the planes to Israel, and Israel uh, developed them, they incorporated them in the Israeli Air Force. It became the Israeli Air Force, these three types of French jets. For various reasons, the uh, world and the Arabs were unaware of the potency of this plane. They were unaware of the fact that uh, these jets used correctly could negate a great deal of the Arab firepower, and that uh, the jets had uh, great uh, potential if used in, a, uh, in an opportunistic fashion. Also, Israel bought gunboats from France, special small gunboats. Uh, not buying battleships or cruisers or even destroyers, but small gunboats, but very highly mobile and with a tremendous amount of firepower. Rockets, missiles, so that a gunboat, this type of a gunboat, was the equal in firepower to World War II battleships at uh, a fraction of the cost and at a fraction of the size and with a great deal more mobility and less vulnerability to attack the planes and to other surface vessels. By this time, uh, David Ben-Gurion had passed from the scene as the leader of the uh, Labor Party, and the new Prime Minister of Israel after Charette was Levi Eshkol. Eshkol was a uh, very good technocrat. He was a person that ran the government very well, but he was not an inspiring figure at all. He was not a good speaker, and uh, he uh, had very little of the charisma that would be necessary at this uh, moment of crisis. In world Jewry, everybody, we all rolled along in a, in a fool's paradise that uh, Israel would always be protected and that the world would protect it and that there would be no problems. That was further fueled by the fact that the United Nations had its peacekeeping force present in the Sinai. It had its peacekeeping force present at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba to guarantee free shipping. And even though Nasser had violated his word and did not allow any free ship, Israeli shipping or even any ships to Israel in the Suez Canal, and the state of Israel and the Jewish world felt it could live with that inconvenience and that the war was not a problem. It wasn't going to happen. The Arabs weren't going to attack again. 
And that was the uh, situation at the, in the early part of May 1967. But Nasser in May 1967, on the basis of uh, reports that he received from his Russian advisors and reports that he received regarding Israeli strength as well, felt that the time was propitious, that he now had an army well-trained enough to mount a bitter and complete war and that he would be able to uh, conquer Israel handily. And he therefore decided that he would not wait any longer. His internal problems and his foreign problems were such a nature that he felt that by delaying he would only compound the problem. So in order to solve the problem, he was going to go to war. Uh, the Israelis celebrated their uh, Independence Day parade uh, on the 19th anniversary of the State of Israel in May 1967, blissfully oblivious to what was going to happen in the next three weeks. This was a storm that blew up overnight. It uh, had almost no uh, precedent in the speed that it occurred and in the lethal danger that uh, now was present. Nasser announced that the Egyptian army was going to go on maneuvers in the Sinai. Uh, going on maneuvers in the Sinai was a violation of the agreement, of the uh, peacekeeping agreement between uh, Israel and Egypt and the United Nations that had uh, prevailed since the end of the Sinai campaign. Again, but Sinai belonged to Egypt and Egypt had sovereignty over it, and there really was no way to keep the Egyptian army out. So the Egyptian army crossed with great fanfare and in extremely large numbers. They crossed the uh, Suez Canal and came east into the Sinai. Israel protested, but nothing happened. Nasser, uh, in the time-honored uh, manner, uh, it's almost a repeat of the story of Hitler, where he took one country and then he would digest it and look around and see if there were any repercussions, and if there weren't any, so then he would he'd go on to the next move. Nasser saw that nothing happened. The United Nations took no action. No one took any action. So then he moved to the second step. The second step is that he would prevent... Israeli shipping from coming up the Gulf of Su uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. No ship would be able to sail past Sharm el Sheikh. And he installed guns. He claims he claimed to have installed guns. Later, it was found out to have been a fake. But he claimed to have installed guns, artillery guns, on the point at Sharm el Sheikh, and that any ships that were bound into the Gulf of Aqaba that were headed for the Israeli port of Eilat would be shot at. Now, this was an interference with the hallowed principle of international law, free navigation of the waterways of the world, to which all of the major countries in the world had signed an agreement. They were all committed that such a thing would not be allowed. Poor little Israel went and complained, and everybody told them, you know, to take it easy. They'll try and work it out. 
naturally, uh, there were the, the United States uh, were, uh, considered. The United States considered sending one of its own flagships up the Gulf of Aqaba to test the blockade to see whether NASA really meant it. But for all the uh, good intentions and good ideas, nothing happened. President Johnson made soothing remarks. Uh, Israel saw a pattern beginning to emerge. The next pattern, the next piece of the pattern was when uh, Nasser ordered the United Nations peacekeeping troops off of Egyptian territory. He said that they were only there at the sufferance of the Egyptian government. The Egyptian government that uh, invited them there in 1957, now it was 10 years later, and he was inviting them all to go home. The general secretary of the United Nations, who then was a Burmese, who knew, uh, agreed that Nasser had a right to do so. We have very bad experiences with secretary generals of the United Nations. First, Mr. Waldheim, who's our noted friend, and then this Burmese. It just, uh, it just doesn't go for us. I don't think you can get the job if you're, uh, <coughs> if you're in good standing with certain peoples in the world. In any event, the uh, United Nations withdrew its peacekeeping force. Uh, the Gen Secretary General flew and to Egypt and had conferences with Nasser, but it all came to nothing. And again, you had uh, shipping blocked in the Gulf of Aqaba. You had the United Nations peacekeeping forces removed. And you had a large Egyptian army in the Sinai moving towards the Israeli border. Now Israel began to take notice. And Israel warned Egypt uh, not to continue along that line because uh, Israel would certainly defend itself and go to war. The United States, as is its custom, issued pronouncements that everybody should, you know, take a shower and two aspirin and rest up and they'll be back to them later. And that really didn't do anything for anyone, except it showed, again, the impotence that of America in a situation such as this, where it really, really was in, it had no more influence on the situation. The United States attempted to talk to Russia, to have Russia restrain Egypt, but instead of restraining Egypt, Russia encouraged Egypt. Russia felt that it had everything to gain here, uh, if the Arab states won, it would enhance Russia. If the Arab states lost, it would make them more dependent upon Russia. That was Russia's uh, terribly uh, cynical policy. But the policy was correct. That Russia could not lose. If the Arabs won, then the Russians won. If the Arabs lost, then where else was, were the Arabs going to go except the Russia? Who else was going to save them? And that's exactly how it worked out for Russia. So Russia had nothing to lose by this, everything to gain, and Russia encouraged it, therefore. Now, Nasser, in his uh, diabolical plan, uh, wanted that Israel should be surrounded on all sides. It should not be a war of Egypt 
alone against Israel because he was afraid and deep down in his heart that Israel would be able to mobilize a sufficient army and be able to defend itself successfully against Egypt. He therefore uh, had a conference with the leaders in Damascus, the Syrians. The Syrians have remained until today the most implacable foes of the state of Israel, the Syrians and the Iraqis, far more than any of the other Arabs. And the Syrians agreed to join in the venture. The Syrians agreed that they would shell the Israeli positions in the Galil from the Golan Heights, which they controlled. But the, uh, the uh, Syrians, uh, to a certain extent, double-crossed Nasser because they never sent their army into Israel in the Six-Day War. They shelled, and they fired upon the Israeli targets, and they pinned down a certain number of troops, but they never sent their army in. Unlike the Yom Kippur War, which we'll also discuss later, where the Syrians were the main threat almost. What really uh, clinched the matter that there was going to be a war was the behavior of King Hussein. Hussein was afraid that he would miss the train. He saw now that Syria and Egypt, his two arch enemies in the Middle East, had made an alliance. On paper, his military analysts showed him that, e that there was a very strong likelihood that Egypt and Syria would win the war. They also convinced him that diplomatically the world would do nothing to support Israel. And therefore he was afraid that he would lose because if Egypt and Syria were successful, then they would come not only against the Israeli part of Palestine, they would come against the Jordanian part of Palestine also. And he was afraid that he'd be expelled from the old city of Jerusalem and lose that stature and to lose the trade and the commerce and the tourism. Therefore, when he added it up, he had to go into the war. The Israelis always mocked him afterwards, and they said that in 67, when he should have stayed out, he went in, and in 73, when he should have went in, he stayed out. But in, he decided that he would go in, and he met with Nasser. You have the famous picture of the newspapers of the Times, uh, how embracing the two arch enemies who said uh, absolutely terribly uh, insulting things about each other and their ancestry and everything else, uh, embraced in the, uh, in the hug of uh, anticipated victory over the state of Israel and throwing the Jews into the sea. And the Jordanians placed their army under the command of an Egyptian general so that there would be a unified command there was one Egyptian general that was in charge of all the armies, and it was all under one unified command. The uh, alliance with Nasser by Hussein sealed the fate of the Six-Day War. Now, Israel knew then that it had to go to war because of the fact that they were now surrounded on all sides and that uh, it was not a matter that would go away. Uh, Abba Ibn, who then was uh, the Israeli foreign minister, traveled the world, stopping at all the world's capitals to enlist the good wishes of 
the world leaders, but nobody would do anything to stop it. And there, Abe even got the first inkling from General de Gaulle that France was also about ready to change sides before the Six-Day War, in which de Gaulle told, warned uh, even that if Israel goes to war, it will lose the friendship of France. Well, Israel had no choice. Uh, Eben had outlined to de Gaulle very clearly. So de Gaulle signaled the change of policy, which after the Six-Day War would become so evident, uh, France thought, uh, sought a uh, means to reestablish its influence in the Arab world. Now, I need not tell you that the Jews throughout the world were frightened out of their minds because here was the specter of the Holocaust happening all over again, barely 25 years after the first one. The state would be destroyed. There would, no one would defend it. And the uh, Arabs, in their typical hyperbole, they broadcast all sorts of threats, you know, the Jewish women, prepare yourselves. Uh, we're going to throw all the men into the sea. You know, everybody... We, and there was a man by the name of Ahmed Shukeri, who was the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was in its first Gilgal before, uh, before, before Yasser. Yasser didn't have a beard then. Before Yasser took it over. So this guy Shukeri, who was uh, a Saudi, and he was a, a foul-mouthed, evil person, he said the worst things, the worst threats, and he said them on public uh, interviews and television, what he was going to do. And therefore, the Jewish world trembled. It trembled. If I, I, I don't know, I don't remember uh, very well Hitler, but the impression that I had is that there was, the fear was greater than even before Hitler of what was going to happen. And I remember that we had a day of prayer in my synagogue in Miami Beach. There were days of prayer throughout the Jewish world. I mean, the synagogue was packed. People walked in off the streets, people who hadn't been in a synagogue, Yom Kippur maybe, for 25 years. They didn't know what to do with themselves because they felt the imminent destruction of the Jewish people. I also remember as a personal vignette that I don't know what got into people, but the, uh, the, the rabbinate in the United States, the combined rabbinate, all sent out messages that we should all go visit our local priests and ministers to try and enlist public support for Israel. And you look back at it, it was absolutely ludicrous. But I remember that we had a very uh, beautiful Episcopal church not far from us, and I tried to get an appointment with the, with the uh, rector of the church, and he wouldn't see me. He just wouldn't see me. And I don't think that my experience was uh, isolated. The rest of the world was more worried about the baseball season, about the important things that were going to happen. And the Jewish people felt isolated, frightened, just uh, cut off completely from any solace or hope. The Israeli army mobilized. And they stood mobilized for almost two weeks. And that was very expensive. In Israel, the mobilization, as we'll, uh, I'll point out to you later that part of the problem in the uh, 
in the Yom Kippur War was the expense of mobilizing the army. And they, they, they had had so many false alarms and mobilized them so many times, and every time you mobilize them, it cost them three or eight or ten million dollars or something. So they decided that this time they wouldn't mobilize. You know, they were going to save the three million. So they were at standing an army at, for almost two weeks. And uh, Dayan, who uh, was, uh, they formed a government of national unity. So, so serious was the situation that they formed the government of national unity. So serious was the situation that the left wing, the Marach, brought in Menachem Begin into the government as a minister without portfolio, but as a minister in the government. I want you to know that Begin, uh, Begin was thrown out of the Knesset with regularity. Ben-Gurion, in all the years that Begin was in the Knesset, never referred to him by name. He said, the person who was sitting next to member of Knesset, Bader. And uh, they brought him in. They made a wall-to-wall coalition. Eshkol made a speech to the nation to be strong, and he broke down in the middle of the speech. It was the most depressing thing imaginable. I have that speech recorded here, but I'm not going to play it. But uh, I, I, it's something to hear, that he's, he broke in the middle of the speech telling everybody else to be strong. And the, no one knew what was going to happen. Uh, Dayan took a commanding role as Minister of Defense. And Dayan insisted that Israel strike first that the only hope in this war was a what is necessarily called a preemptive strike. And in order to put the enemy off, uh, he made an announcement that the, he feels that the crisis is ending. And in the two weeks they've been standing there mobilized, nothing happens, he doesn't think anything is going to happen, and that part of the Israeli army is being demobilized, which he did. He sent them home for Shabbos and brought them back Saturday night also at great expense. But that was part Israel now engaged in this war of nerves. And on Monday morning, in the first week in June in 1967, the war began. I remember in, in being in shul for the first minute in the morning, and people came in and said it. I remember that people didn't go to work that way. People didn't do anything. People just stayed. They stayed in shul. They stayed just people didn't go anywhere. And because of the fact that the Israeli uh, radio went on blackout, as far as news was concerned, during the, almost the first 18 hours of the war, there was no news, and the Arabs broadcast their news naturally. So their news was they're, they're in Tel Aviv, they're in Jerusalem, they're bombing, they're destroying, they're killing. What happened was that the Arabs believed their own propaganda. Hussein went into the war because he heard Nasser announce that the Israeli Air Force was destroyed. Nasser got on the radio and said he destroyed the Israeli Air Force, so Hussein went into the war. What had really happened was that on the morn that Monday morning, Israel launched a surprise attack and in an hour and a half destroyed the entire Arab Air Forces of Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Over 500 planes were destroyed at the loss of less than, I think it was 19 planes for the Israelis. Most of the Egyptian planes were caught on the ground. They attacked for, at tea time, 8.15 in the morning. Everybody went to get his cup of tea. 
and they caught 95% of the planes on the ground and destroyed them. Uh, they flew so low, they flew as low as six feet over the Mediterranean for almost 70 miles. I mean, that's some job of being a pilot. At flying at speeds of uh, sound and over the sound barrier in order to escape the radar. And the Arab air forces were destroyed. Once the Arab air forces were destroyed, then Dayan said the war was won already. You still have to fight the war, but, but the tactical advantage had changed immediately. Azer Weitzman was then the commander of the air force, General Mordechai Hod, others and they put across a, uh, an unbelievable feat of arms in being able to turn the planes around in record time, sending them, every plane almost hit its target. It was just, it was a, it was a classic example of uh, the destruction of an air force by another air force. It never had there been such a lopsided battle. Then Israel attacked on the Egyptian front. The, Egypt, the Israelis were divided into three main tank columns. One was led by Sharon, one was led by a man called Yafi, Mordechai Yafi, who later became the head of the Israeli Natural Forest Preserves. And the third was a general by the name of Tal. And these three tank corps burst into the Gaza Strip and and defeated the Egyptian army, encircled the Egyptian army, and burst into the Sinai, and the Egyptian army was done away with in three days. Surrounded, uh, shot by planes, there, is a, there are famous pictures, uh, if you'll see, of the entire Mitla Pass, which is the road, the pass through the mountains in the Sinai, just end-to-end -end Egyptian vehicles in a line, all shot up, burned, destroyed, trucks, tanks, artillery. The panic was on. Over uh, 5,000 Egyptian soldiers surrendered immediately, and the Israelis were at the Suez in record time. It, they got to the Suez faster than they did in the Sinai campaign. When that happened, uh, Nasser, there was nothing between the Israelis and Cairo. Uh, Nasser panicked very badly after announcing that he was winning the war and winning the war and winning the war. He all of a sudden was on the verge of losing his country. Hussein, as I mentioned to you, made the error of coming into the war. Hussein attacked in Jerusalem, uh, trying to capture the, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the Jordanians attacked Government House, which was the British uh, High Commissioner's residence, and after uh, and that was the United Nations uh, headquarters. And after a short battle, the Jordanians won it, and then the Israelis counterattacked, and the Israelis took it from them. Then Israel decided that it was going to bring some of the troops from the Sinai because that war was won already. They were going to bring some of the troops up and fight for Jerusalem. The fight for Jerusalem was concentrated in uh, a number of places. One place was Ammunition Hill, which, as the name implies, was a British ammunition fortress which protected East Jerusalem, and the Jordanians had extensive bunkers and defenses. And the paratroopers on uh, Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning of the war captured a 
high casualty, that, that piece, when they, when they had that piece, so then the Jordanians were outflanked. They had to move their men. The Israelis reached Mount Scopus, and then they reached Mount of Olives, the Augusta Victoria Hospital, going around the back of Jerusalem, around the east side of Jerusalem, until finally they had isolated the uh, area of the old city itself. And the old city they attacked on uh, Wednesday morning in a, uh, in a, uh, in a uh, charge through Lion's Gate, through the northeastern gate of the city. And miraculously, the Jordanians fled. They did not really put up much resistance. If it would have been house-to-house -house fighting, if it would have been... Uh, any sort of uh, concerted effort if they wanted to make it Stalingrad, then who knows what would have happened. But the, the Jordanian army fled, and in fleeing, allowed the Israelis to capture the old city and to capture the western wall, the Kotel Amarovi. I want you to hear, I have a record uh, of the Israeli news broadcast, the live news broadcast of the capture of the wall, and you'll also hear the blowing of the shofar by Rabbi Gorin, who then was the chief chaplain of the Israeli army. You'll hear the gunfire in the background. You'll also hear the memorial prayer that he made for the fallen soldiers and the weeping of the men as they came to the Kotel. So if you'll listen to this, please. ראינו את העיר העתיקה מימיננו כשהיינו על הרכס של אוגוסטה ויקטוריה נהנינו מלמעלה מהמראה ואנחנו צרודים עכשיו מצעקות ההתלהבות וההתרגשות כשנכנסנו פנימה בראש כל השיירה החפק שלנו על זחל פרץ את השער דרס על אופנוע עבר במחנה ירדני ועלינו ראשונים ובהתלהבות עצומה ישר עינה אל הרחבה מוישלה, סגני, מזה הרבה שנים, רץ מיד עם כמה חבר'ה והניפו את הדגל לכותל המערבי. ועכשיו כל העיר העתיקה בידינו, ואנחנו מאוד מאוד מאושרים. אני יורד ברגע זה, ברגע זה אני יורד במדרגות אל הכותל. אינני אדם דתי, מעולם לא הייתי, אבל זהו הכותל, ואני נוגע באבני הכותל המערבי. Hey! 
עת נערוך אזכרה לזכר חללי צה"ל שנפלו במערכה הזאת נגד כל אויבי ישראל. אל מלא רחמים שוכן במרומים. המצרים אל מנוחה נכונה על כנפי השכינה במעלות קדושים, גיבורים וטהורים. כזוהר העקיע מאירים ומזהירים לנשמות חיילי צבא ההגנה לישראל שנפלו במערכה הזאת נגד אויבי ישראל ושנפלו על קדושת השם העם והארץ בשחרור בית המקדש, הר הבית, הכותל המערבי וירושלים, עיר האלוהים. בגני דתי מנוחתם, לכן בעל הרחמים יזכירם בסתר כנפיו העולמים. ויצרור בצרור החיים את נשמתם, אדוני ונפלתם, וינוחו בשלום ולשכבם, ויענו לגורלם בקיץ הימין, ונאמר אמן! That uh, dramatic moment, I remember I was, uh, I was sitting in a car in Miami Beach and I heard the bulletin on the radio that the old city fell and the, the Jordanians had surrendered it and moved it. There was an old man from Shul, his name was Mr. Shamitz, all of us show him, I remember it. So he ran up to me and he embraced me so. I mean, Jews felt that, you know, that they were vindicated. For an instant, you at least felt that you were vindicated. And that it was an open, uh, an open revelation of, uh, of a hand in history that sometimes we'd find hard to see. The uh, freeing of Jerusalem naturally forced the uh, Jordanian army and the Arabs to vacate the entire West Bank. They were outflanked, they were <coughs> harried and hounded by the Israeli Air Force, were pounded across the Jordan River, and along with the Jordanians, about 100,000 Arabs also fled, further compounding the Arab refugee problem. And the great Arab refugee camp at Jericho, if you go there today, it's still all deserted. They all fled across the river. And Hussein, uh, also one of the memorable pictures, uh, unshaven, haggard, tired, beaten, got on television and announced, you know, the defeat. And he cursed out all the other Arabs for fooling him, and they were broken. 
And the Israelis decided that they would settle the score with Syria now also. Beginning on Friday morning, they brought their troops. And many of these troops are the same troops they fought in the Sinai. And then the best battalions they brought up to Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, they brought them up to fight again at the Golan. So some of them fought three times, three major battles in the week. It's a little like uh, the story of the uh, famous main regiment in the uh, Battle of Gettysburg that uh, Lee attacked uh, the first day on the right flank. And they were there, so to give them rest, they moved them to the left flank the next day, and then they were attacked there, and then to further give them rest, so the Meade moved them to the center, and the last day the Pickett's Charge was at the center of the line. So the same regiment really fought the whole Battle of Gettysburg. A little of that happened here also. The Golan was an impregnable fortress. If you go there today, you see it. It's just unbelievable. Impregnable fortress. Russian uh, system of defenses, mines, uh, bunkers, artillery, uh, machine guns. And there the Air Force was of aid, but the Air Force alone certainly could not do it because of the fact that you had to conquer it foot by foot, step by step, grenade by grenade. And the Israelis uh, in a, uh, what was a textbook exhibition of how foot soldiers can uh, dislodge an enemy, no matter how strong, from a defensive position, were able to push the Egyptian, uh, push the Syrians out of all three lines of defenses. And the Israelis captured uh, the peak of Mount Hermon. If you want to know what the peak of Mount Hermon means, when you're up there, you can see every plane landing at Damascus Airport. 20 miles from Damascus Airport, you can see with the binoculars every plane. You can read the markings on every plane. And today there's a great Israeli radar station there and everything. It's the highest point in the Middle East. The Syrians recaptured it in the 1973 war, and the Israelis in the last hours of the war before the ceasefire, again at great cost, recaptured, recaptured it again. The Israelis pushed all the way to the city of Kanetra. The entire Golan, the northern Golan, the eastern Golan, the southern Golan, all were taken by the Israelis. The, Egyptians, the Assyrians were cleared out completely. The Israelis worked almost 10 years to remove the minefields, just to remove the minefields, and there still are areas in the Golan where the mines have not been removed. And now, from the small little Israel that, uh, that was on the verge of being annihilated, it became the giant imperial Israel. Russia, true to its plan, immediately broke diplomatic relations with Israel. The uh, United Nations voted a ceasefire, which Egypt and the Arabs accepted, because without accepting the ceasefire, their governments would have fallen. Uh, Israel could have captured Damascus and Cairo and Amman, though God knows what they would do with them. And Israel felt convinced in the wake of this great military victory, a victory that, by the way, uh, Israel sustained about 700 a little over 700 dead and about 2,000 wounded. But uh, the, uh, the shine of the victory, the radiance, the glory of the victory was such that it overwhelmed the personal tragedy that was involved. Whereas in the Yom Kippur War, where Israel suffered substan more substantial casualties, the casualties 
were more bitterly felt because the shine of the victory wasn't there. And in uh, Dayan's famous words, on the next day, on the, after, the, after the Six-Day War was over, so Dayan's famous words there, he said, well, I'm waiting at the telephone for Hussein to call. The Israelis were convinced somehow that the Arabs would now make peace, that the Arabs would trade peace for the territory that Israel acquired. Had the Arabs done so in 1967, they certainly could have struck the deal. Uh, politically, every party in Israel would have allowed it to happen. It would have given back, I don't know about East Jerusalem and the Kotel, but aside from that, everything could have, everything could have gone back. But nobody called. And the Arabs played it true to their, uh, to their uh, policy, and their policy is always to fight the last war, always to make peace on the last terms. The Arabs said, now we're willing to let you have the partition board of 1948. Well, that was too late for that. Now they were talking about, now they could have had the 1967 borders. In 1973, they said we would settle for the 67 borders. It was too late. But the, uh, the success and the victory in the Six-Day War, as we will see, was the was a great opportunity. Not all of the opportunities that were present then were exploited. Not in the political sense, not in the military sense, not in the social sense, not in the religious sense. But a whole new world opened up. And a whole new uh, viewpoint of Israel also opened up in the world. The Jews were enormously proud. And the non-Jews had a great deal of resentment. And in the United Nations and in other diplomatic arenas, a great deal of the resentment spilled over. And it became, a, it became very fashionable to look at Israel not with, uh, not with favorable eyes, not to be prejudiced towards it. Because in Golda Meir's uh, famous statement, I heard Golda Meir on the fifth day of the war, she came to Miami Beach for a bond drive that uh, it's also one of the most moving scenes that I ever saw. Uh, she was in Miami Beach Thursday in the afternoon, and she got up to speak, and she spoke about, again, the conquest of Jerusalem, and she was one old tough lady, broke down and wept, and the entire audience wept with her so, and people, people, not that they gave money, there was a man that came up and he gave her cufflinks, he had pure gold cufflinks, he said, take it all, you know what to do. So there arose this question, what to do. I, uh, I have uh, my friends from Chicago who went on Aliyah in the 1950s, so they always tell me the first Shavuos after the Six-Day War, this was the week before Shavuos. So the first Shavuos, the night of Shavuos before the Six-Day War, so it was the first Yontiv that the Kotel was available. And it wasn't like the Kotel now with the big plaza and everything. It was a narrow alleyway through the Arab neighborhood. And they said starting 3 in the morning, all Jerusalem walked. You could hear like, like an army marching. Everybody went. And it was religious, observant, not, made no difference. The, everybody went. 
and they, they, I know some of them have told me that they still live from that experience. Some of them told me that when Mashiach will come, so that's what it'll sound like. You know, the, the sound of footsteps in the night from every place in the city. People got up three in the morning to start so that four o'clock when the sun rose in Jerusalem, everybody would be there for sunrise for the Yont of Shavuos at the, at the Kotha. So it was a dramatic moment in Jewish history, a moment that there will be other moments, certainly, and the other moments will perhaps eclipse this one. But in our time, rarely has a Jew ever had an opportunity to feel the emotions or to experience that type of feeling and sensitivity towards Jewish history and the Jewish past that the Six-Day War provided for. Unfortunately, there's always the day afterwards. The day afterwards, it's hard to assess it. It's hard to take the emotion and translate it into action, into positive results. Uh, hard to produce what should be produced. And that really will be the continuation of the story. Uh, but we have never come back to that level. We've never come back to that, to that achievement, to that time. But in terms of what was achieved at that moment, that has to be one of the high watermarks, certainly, of our generation, and an indication of the capabilities and the hidden resources and even spiritual resources, because there was a great spiritual reawakening for a short period of time, and the unity and the strength that lies within the Jewish people. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of the Six-Day War at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at com, on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Uh, we did not go to our news from Israel because there is a problem that we are having with our uh, technical setup uh, getting the audio from Israel at the moment, so we didn't interrupt Rabbi Wine. I went straight through to the top of the hour. We'll begin the next lecture, and then, of course, we'll break um, uh, for some interesting conversations. Dr. Stuart Ditchick is coming up. Uh, Jenna Beltzler from the OU Accelerator Program is coming up. We have a lot to do this morning here at JMNAM, plus, of course, Rabbi Goldwasser. And uh, we have to go through the events that are happening this week during the nine days, including the uh, Sunday presentation from the New Springville Jewish Center, Coming up on Sunday here at uh, the Nahum Siegel Network, I also remind you that we will be um, heading to Israel next week for the uh, annual historic, can an annual show be historic? And the answer is yes, uh, the annual historic Nefesh Benefesh flight, and uh, that'll be happening t uh, next week. Uh, you'll hear it Wednesday between 6 and 9 a.m., that's when you'll hear the show. Also, Monday, Mordechai Shapiro is slated to join us here at JMNAM. To join us Monday, Mordechai Shapiro is slated to be here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of the Vilna Gon and the Baal Hatanya at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself with the Gon of Vilna and uh, Schneer Zalman of Ladi, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe of the Baal Hatanya. Now, I'm not going to discuss uh, directly uh, the dispute between the uh, Hasidim and their opponents and the historical uh, events that took place then. I'll only uh, touch on those things tangentially to here. 
But this is the question of approaches to halacha. And through approaches to halacha, it's really through approaches to how to deal with the world, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. How to look at the, our society and how to react to it. And they're two very, very different people, even though they are both enormously great people. They live, uh, the Gon dies in 1797. Uh, the uh, Balatanya outlives him by 20 years. The Gon represents the non-Hasidic element of Ashkenazic Jewry. The Gon was a strong opponent of Hasidut. And the Balatanya is the uh, a scholarly, uh, philosophical, Kabbalistic interpretation of Hasidut. He is not the same type of Hasidut that was practiced later in the Ukraine or in Galicia. Uh, he's not into uh, uh, potions or uh, magic uh, incantations. He's not a popular Rebbe in the sense uh, that he deals with uh, these matters, but he is the, the Tanya itself is the philosophic and uh, halachic defense of uh, the ideas of Kabbalah and Hasidus. And it's interesting that uh, the uh, Gon's disciple, Reb Chaim of Alojan, wrote a sefer called the Nefesh Achaim. Uh, which is the philosophic and halachic and Kabbalistic uh, uh, disagreement with Hasidus. Uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb uh, has written uh, extensively on the fact that both the Tanya and the Nefesh Achaim apparently say the same thing but from different directions. The Gaon of Vilna, who was born in 1720, is uh, a one-of-a-kind. Everyone that we have discussed until now uh, has uh, their equal in their generation. It's like uh, they're great, maybe the greatest of the generation, but they're part of the generation. The Gon is not part of his generation. The Gon is a uh, superman. Uh, the uh, Reb Chaim Valoshiner says the Gon is the Ramban, the Rashboa, he's a throwback of four or five hundred years since we've seen such a person. The Gon belongs to the time of Rashi and the Rambam, not to the time of the 18th century. The Gon, uh, his erudition, his genius, his knowledge, uh, the fact, his industry, the fact that he kept a notebook in which he recorded every moment of his life in which he considered time wasted uh, places him in a completely different category than anyone else. Now, Dagon in his lifetime holds no official rabbinic or community position. Dagon is a completely private person. He's in his own room. He's in the original ivory tower. 
which there is no one that can interrupt it. And he does not lead a group. And in fact, in a matter, he does not even write books. All We have, uh, according to my notes, 54 books attributed to him, but none of them were written by him. They are all written by his disciples and his students and his sons who say this is the interpretation of the Gon. But the Gon didn't write books. There's a school, a modern school, uh, that has glorified the Hasidic movement, even though they themselves are not observant, and who have uh, sought to romanticize it. So one of their leaders wrote, that school exists here in Israel very strongly, by the way, in the universities. Like Buber wrote this famous work on Hasidus, right? But Buber had a connection to Hasidus like I'm an astronaut. But uh, but that's the way it goes. And uh, so uh, they said, well, the uh, Gon created books, but the Baal Shem Tov created people. But they're wrong on both counts. Uh, the Gon did not create books. The Gon's influence uh, permeated an entire society, even though he never stepped outside of his house. I mean, he went into exile when he was a young man, etc. He traveled, but basically, uh, he, uh, in his mature years, he stayed in his house. He didn't conduct the yeshiva. They say that Reb Chaim Valozhiner is his main disciple. Reb Chaim Valozhiner writes that two or three times a year to go and gave him 20 minutes or a half hour. He saved up all his questions. He came, you know, he uh, spoke to the Gon, and uh, the half hour was up, that was it. And then he came back a few months later. He was not someone that learned the Chevrusa with the Gon. Nobody did. Nobody could. And uh, the only one that, interestingly enough, that had a personal relationship with the Gon was the Dubner Magid, of Yaakov Krantz. He and the Gon were friends. He was like the only person that had entry to the Gon, and the Gon would call him in every so often that he should uh, reprimand him, that he should uh, tell him ethical things, he should point out, uh, uh, you know, failings. There's a very, very interesting, unusual relationship between the Magid of Dubna and between the Gon. The legend about it, which uh, more than anything else characterizes the Gon, is that uh, the, the Magid said to him, you know, uh, you're the Gon of Vilna, right? And you know Kolatora Kula, and you sit and learn all day, etc. He said, uh, that's very good for you. He said, but go out on the marketplace in Vilna, you know, where the Jews have to sell uh, boots and fish and be carpenters and uh, teamsters. And let's see if you're the Gon there. That would be a trick. That would be an accomplishment. In Yiddish, it would be, that would be a kunst. 
And the Gaon said, who says, he, he wept. And he said, you're right, but who says, as medav zayin akunz Who says that we have to, we have to perform uh, these types of tricks, right? So the Gaon, uh, the Gaon realizes that nobody's going to be like him. You know, everybody wants to be like somebody. Nobody wanted to be like the Gaon because it's like saying, I want to be like Rashi. I want to be like the Rami. You know, it's, it's beyond us. I want to be Moshe Rabbeinu. It's beyond us. So the Gon is a, uh, a mystery to us. Now, the Gon, the Gon's basic halachic approach is that everything is found in the text of the Torah, in the text of the Talmud, and that therefore all of the later works are, so to speak, extraneous if one deals with the text itself, so then uh, there's no problem. He interprets the famous uh, Talmudic statement, if the Jewish people would not have sinned, then we would have only had the five books of Moses and the book of Yoshua. You wouldn't have needed the rest, because the rest is only necessary because we don't understand the five books of Moses, and we don't understand the book of Yoshua. So David HaMelech had the right to heal him for us. We needed all the other books to give us some sort of sense. But if we would be, uh, to, a, to a great extent, uh, higher people, we wouldn't need all of that. That's, you know, we don't need Yeshaya Novi to tell me what the problems are. The Chumash says it. But we don't see it in the Chumash. And the Gaon came to show it to us in the Chumash. He came to show it to us in the Talmud. His most famous halachic works, therefore, so the Gaon doesn't come to Paschal halacha. He's a Parshon and he's an Amkon. He's a Parshon, he comes to explain, and he's an Amkon, he goes to the depths of the subject matter and to the correct text, from that, we find what the halacha is. The halacha jumps us in the face. So he doesn't write a book. Or he's not interested in the Shulchan Aruch as a book. Now, the Gon wrote uh, a comment. We have a commentary to Shulchan Aruch called the Be'or Agro, which is written by his children. The Gon's comments to the Shulchan Aruch. Again, he corrected the text in many places. He revealed sources, and he disagrees in many places. And then he also edited the Talmud, so that we have, especially in the Vilna edition, we have his notes on the side of the, uh, the page, in which he makes emendations and corrections. Now, again, no one, no one would dare touch the text. When you touch the text, you're a professor. But the Gon, the Gon is so above criticism, he's so above everything that uh, he uh, he can do it without uh, without anyone faulting him. There's no one that's made as many corrections as the Gon has, and he did it on the basis three things when he uh, went into exile. He visited many, many libraries and saw original manuscripts. The Gon had a photographic memory. 
once he saw something it was there so he didn't have to take the manuscripts back with him and the second thing was comparison of what the Rishonim said, of what the Rashi, Tosfus, what the early Rishonim said. And the third thing was intuition. And the Gaon had a holy intuition that this is really what it said. This is what it is. I'll give you a few examples in a few moments that are really astounding as to uh, how the Gaon looked at the text. So the Gaon is text-based. Now, the Gon had uh, two sets of rules. One set of rules in halacha for himself, his own private practice, according to what he felt was correct, and then the public practice, which many times did not coincide with his decisions. The Gon never attempted to impose his decisions on the public. And many times he never even revealed them to the public. It's a very famous story. Uh, the uh, the Gon wasn't the Rav in Vilna. The Rav in Vilna was a great Talmud Chacham by the name of Rabbi Shmuel Avigda. Now there's a certain problem being the rabbi in town when the Gon is there too. Right? That can inhibit people. But Shmuel Avigda was a very, very strong person. Very strong person. So there was a whole story about a woman with a chicken, with a milk that fell on the chicken, and whether it's kosher or not kosher, etc. So the woman made the mistake of shopping the question. She wasn't satisfied with one. So she asked one of the students of the Gon that she should find out what was the opinion of the Gon. And then she went to the Roventown, to Reb Shmuel Avigdor, and asked him what the Shiloh was. Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor said the chicken is kosher. The Gon felt that it was not kosher. When Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor heard that the Gon said it was not kosher, so he went to him and he said, you know, you're going to undermine my authority in town. So you and I now have to go to the woman's house and we're going to, she's going to serve us that chicken and we're both going to eat it which is one way of getting a meal. <laughs> the Gon agreed. This is the, this is the story. You know, the, the, the Gon is such a figure that there, there are uh, tons of stories. So whether they are or aren't really makes no difference. So they went to the woman's house and Shmuel Avigdor ate from the chicken the Gon, we have a concept in Aloha, Shavya, Anafshe, Chatichari, Yisura. A person can say that something is forbidden to me, even if it's not forbidden halachically. But if I say it's forbidden to me, it's forbidden to me. So the Gon is in a quandary. On one hand, he has to eat because he cares because of the rabbi. On the other hand, he doesn't want, he can't eat because he has said that it was forbidden. So the legend is that as he put the, uh, as he came to eat the chicken, a wax candle that was on the table fell and burned the chicken, and he didn't have to eat it. But we saw from there, we saw from there uh, that 
the Gon was not uh, someone to impose his will or to publicize his... Uh, they say that after that incident, the Gon never answered any Shailen Aloha. Never again responded to questions asked. There was there were uh, there were uh, there was a rabbi in town. There were judges in town. There, but the gon was out of that. Now the gon is, for instance, one of the greatest students of Kabbalah. But the gon is not a Kabbalist. There's a difference. Uh, the gon. Uh, has customs, minhogim of the gone, some of which became accepted in Lithuanian Jewry, most of which never became accepted in Lithuanian Jewry, but some of them retained themselves in the yeshivot because of the fact that the main yeshiva was Valozhin, and Valozhin was founded by Reb Chaim of Valozhin, who was the gone's disciple, so therefore it carried over. There's a sefer called Masay Rav, which describes all of his customs. We have some of his customs here in Jerusalem, especially in this neighborhood, because the people who founded Sharei Chesed were descendants of the Lithuanian Jews who came here in the 19th century, all of whom were descended from disciples of the Gaon of Vilna. Rivlin, Ravkish, the whole, those families all were from the Gaon of Vilna, and therefore many of those customs exist here. The Gaon had a special Nusach in which uh, he eliminated certain prayers which he said are not, uh, for instance, we don't say uh, the custom of the Gaon is that Friday night or Yontav night, we don't say the verses, we don't say Vishomu B'nai Yisrael Sashabas, we don't say Vaidaber Moshe, Moadei Hashem. None of that is said. The Gon says that's a hefsik. It has to, the Kaddish has to follow the brocha immediately, and this is all. And so that custom we have in our synagogue, because of the fact we're neighbors with Shari Chesed, and the people that originally started the synagogue were influenced by the Shari Chesed. Uh, there are other sorts of customs. The Gon said that you don't say Yiskadal Yiskadash. But you say Yiskadel v'Yiskadesh. The Gon is the world's greatest grammarian. We'll see in a minute how he sees halacha in the grammar. And therefore he says the correct pronunciation is Yiskadel v'Yiskadesh. Because in the Novi Yecheskel it says v'Yiskadilti v'Yiskadishti. It doesn't say v'Yiskadalti v'Yiskadashti. And the Chirik later becomes a Tzera, and therefore we say Yiskadel v'Yiskadesh. So that's a mark in all of the yeshivas, that that is how the Kaddish is said. Even though in the majority of the Jewish world, that is not at all the custom. There are other customs of the Gon, but let me give, point out to you a few things how he saw in the Posik what the rabbi saw in the Posik. We have a legend that Lemech, who is the father of Noah, died before the flood, and he died a, a relatively young man. He doesn't live the seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. So to go and ask, where did the, where did the rabbis take that from? 
How do they know? So he says, if you look in the Chumash, it says, Vayehi Yemei Melech. Everybody else, it says, Vayihiyu Yemei. Since it only says Vayihi, a shortened version, so therefore the Torah is indicating to us that he did not live the length of years that he should have lived. And therefore, he says, the reason that he died early is if he would have lived till the flood, then Noah, because of Kibbutz, would have to take his father in. And Rabboni Sholem didn't tell him that he could take his father in. And if he died immediately before the flood, people would say, well, Lemech was such a tzaddik, as long as he was alive, the flood didn't come. But Lemech wasn't such a tzaddik. So therefore, Rabboni Sholem took him away early. So there's a, there's a whole philosophy here that a person's life is not always because of the person. There are so many factors that go into it. But it's all based on the fact that it says Vayihi in the Pesach instead of saying Vayihi you. He says that you look by Chanoch. It says by Chanoch also Ki einenu, Ki also Elohim. That, that he's no longer here, he went to heaven. So it also says, Vayihi. It doesn't say, Vayihi you. And then it finally says, by these people, Asher Huchai, the years that he lived. What do you mean the years that he lived? And naturally it says how many years he lived. Those are the years that he lived. It's telling you that he had more years, but these are the years that he lived. And that for whatever the reason is, the years that could have been allotted to him. So it says it by Odom Arishon, because the Talmud tells us that Odom should have lived a thousand years, and he only lived 930. So the 70 years was taken from Odom Arishon and given to David Amelech, who didn't have any years. It's a whole way of looking at the world far differently than the way we look at it, right? And by Avraham Avinu, it also says, Asher Huchai, because Avraham should have lived 180. He only lived 175 because the Lord did not want him to see that his grandson Esau already turned out to be an outlaw and a murderer, and etc. So he took him early. So that's why it says Asher Huchai. So he says it says it all in the Torah. If you know the grammar. Now we can look at that 500 times and never see it. What's the difference? Vayi, vayi, you. But that was the Gon's genius. That everything is in the Torah. The, yes, uh, I mean, the legends are enormous, but the, there was supposed to be a pidyon aben in the week of Parshas Bracious. So somebody said to him, uh, where is it alluded to in Parshas Bracious that there should be a Pidyon Aben? So he said in the word Bracious itself, that Bracious is an acrostic. Ben Rishon Achar Shloshim Yom Tivde. That spells Bracious. But here's one in Allah, a famous Gemara that we all have difficulty with. The Gemara says, why didn't Shoal Amelech destroy Amalek? 
So the Gemara says, because his Rebbe, and through Doe, Goadomi, they read, Mocho Timche as Zohar Amolek, not Zohar Amolek. And because the Rebbe taught him wrong, there were no, uh, there were no punctuation in the Torah, so therefore the Gemara says that was his error. So the Gon says from there, a halochi, you know, we're very pious here. So when we read the Parsha Zohar, so we read it, Timche Zecher Amolek, Timche Zecher Amolek. The Gon says that we have a proof that it should be Zecher and not Zecher. Because he said that was the mistake. We find in Digduk many times in Tanakh that when there is a double comets, oh-oh, in Smichut it becomes eh-eh. So therefore, the Rebbe also read Zecher Amolek. But he said originally it must have said Zohar, and because of the Digduk it changed to Zecher. And therefore he says, that that's the origin of that error. And there literally are hundreds of such uh, examples from the Gaon of Vilna, the Gaon's Shita regarding Tzesa Kochovim, of when we measure uh, the length of the day, uh, whether it's from sunrise to sunset. The Mogan Avram and others have a much longer day, they, from, the, uh, from dawn till, uh, till later, till the stars come out. So therefore, uh, according to the Gon, the Tseisa Kochovim is, uh, depends on where you're at in the world. At the equator, it's almost instantaneous. And if you're, uh, you know, in northern Alaska, it can be an hour and a half. By the way, I mentioned uh, when we discussed Rabbeinu Tam, why that Rabbeinu Tam holds 72 minutes. Where does he get 72 minutes from? Rabbeinu Tam is also aware that somehow in different places of the world it gets dark earlier than in other places in the world. So why is it 72 minutes everywhere? So Rabbeinu Tam had a colleague, uh, Rabbi Yeshaya Ditrani, from Italy, and in his Sefer in Tosfus Reed on Shabbos, uh, in Perak Bama Madlikin, he explains Rabbeinu Tam's idea. Uh, basically, Rabbeinu Tam knows that the world is round, it's a sphere. The sun sets, it goes below the horizon, correct? But light bends. There's a refraction of light. Light rays bend. What is the maximum angle of refraction that light can bend? Sarabena Tom says it's 72 minutes. After 72 minutes, any light that you see is no longer the sun. It's clouds, it's other things reflecting because you've passed the maximum point of the refraction of light, of how far light can bend. And therefore he says it's 72 minutes all over the world because of the fact that we're not going by, when it's dark, we're going by the angle of refraction of light. 
The Gaon disagrees with that. The Gaon has a different uh, order for the uh, Passover plate, for the Kaira of Pesach. The Gaon doesn't have three matzahs, he only has two matzahs. The Gaon has his, all of which is based again on his study of text. And because of that, therefore, uh, we see a completely different view of things. The Gon planted the love of Torah amongst Lithuanian Jewry. The Gon is the father of the yeshiva movement, even though he never had a yeshiva. He's the father of the Musser movement, even though he never dealt with Musser, though he's the one that saved the Mesilas Yeshorim. He said that in the first ten chapters of the Mesilas Yeshorim of Moshe Chaim Litzato, he said there's not one extra word. The Gon was the one that initiated the return of Jews to the Ashkenazic Jews to the land of Israel. It is his disciples who uh, his disciples are the ones that came in the early 1800s. The Gon himself wanted to come. He literally missed the boat. He came too late to the boat. He said he saw that in heaven they didn't want him to come. But the, uh, this is from a person who never left his room. So his influence on halacha is that he taught us to look at the text. Now he spawned many later commentaries. Rabbi Barawine is speaking about the Vilna Gon and the Balhatanya, spending the last few minutes exclusively on the Vilna Gon, and we'll continue with this lecture coming up in our spoken word format of JM and the AM during these nine days, or more accurately, ten days, because Sunday the observance of Tishabav is actually the tenth of Av. And we'll run through in just a few minutes the um some of the events that are going on in regard to uh the nine days, and of course what we plan to do on Sunday our presentation uh, all day long, or at least until 2 o'clock Mincha time here at uh, com and uh, the NSN app. Wednesday morning here at JMN with 74 degrees and thunderstorms and a high temperature of 86. I do remind everybody that um, uh, this coming Monday here at JMN the AM, we will welcome Mordechai Shapiro into our studio. Be a good way to kick things off in our regular music format after Tisha B'Av. And then I remind you that um, I remind you that this coming Tuesday after JM and the AM, uh, we leave for the Nefesh Benefesh flight. And actually, and I know this is hard to believe for those of you not familiar with it because we've done it before, actually broadcast from the plane and meet some incredible and amazing Olim who are uh, among the hundreds that are on that flight, the charter flight, uh, on Tuesday. And then from that point, we uh, we air that program on Wednesday's JM and the AM. So our show from the plane, you'll hear it Wednesday morning between 6 and 9 here at JM and the AM. With us live via telephone is our wonderful friend, Dr. Stuart Ditchick. He is the founder of Kids of Courage. They have another amazing journey coming up. It wouldn't be an exciting summer without a Kids of Courage unique 
journey, and they have one uh, uh, coming up, and he's with us live via telephone. Dr. Dietrich, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem. All is wonderful. How are all the uh, couragers doing? How are all the kids doing this summer? The couragers are doing amazing. The uh, head staff are, are sweating it. We just had orientation last night for our staff, uh, uh, which was great. We, you know, we do an annual orientation, uh, talking about the medical aspects of the program and and the requirements to be a staff member and you know what's expected. And I have to tell you, as hard as the last few weeks have been. Uh, preparing for the trip, obviously fundraising, getting everything paid for, which is always a challenge. When we have the staff orientation, it just is a kick in the pants and in the most positive way because you get to meet these young volunteers who are just sacrificing in ways I never did when I was their age. Uh, And I think the future for the Jewish world is very good when you see young volunteers giving of their time like this. That is pretty amazing. What's on the agenda for this trip? So we're off to a first-ever destination once again for the Couragers. We're going to Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, We were looking for a cool spot for the summer, so we chose Phoenix. Uh, We figure it's nice and cool. It's cool indoors in Phoenix, but it's actually, to be uh, very open, last year we were in Las Vegas with a similar temperature and challenges of the heat, and we actually had the best medical year ever in our 11 years was last year in Las Vegas. We didn't have a single hospitalization on the trip, which is unusual. Thank God. Um, so it, there's something about the heat in that part of the country that is not as challenging as the heat, even in places like New York with the humidity. So we're off to Phoenix uh, next Wednesday. Uh, it's a huge group. We actually have a very large group from Eretz Yisrael. Once again this year, we're bringing in uh, a bunch of uh, campers and couragers from Israel, uh, which is, makes the trip even more exciting. Uh, and uh, we have kids coming from all over the world, which is really, and we have our first ever staff member coming from France, which we're very excited about. There'll be a total so, of how many couragers on this trip? So our group is about 370 strong with about 140, 138 to 140, depending on if somebody drops out before uh, uh, campers or couragers that will be with us. And that's an astounding uh, figure because those who are familiar with uh, the the way Kids of Courage operates and the type of people they are attracting, we're talking about youngsters with really, really serious medical situations beyond what a normal person can comprehend. Uh, I think sometimes even some of your medical personnel have difficulty believing that they're able to do what they could do in their situations. Yeah. And, and and you multiply that by all these, I mean, 130-plus couragers. You're talking about a really difficult operation. It's a logistical challenge and a medical challenge because we're dealing with a huge variety of illnesses and disabilities. Uh, we have to rent or buy a lot of specialized equipment. Uh, today I'm doing my narcotics ordering for the trip. We travel with a large amount of drugs and narcotics uh, that we use every day. We divvy out over uh, this trip will be over 16, 1,650 doses of medicine a day without emergency medications. So uh, it's it's a real, uh, it's a moving parts operation that's really a, a medical feat and can only be accomplished because of incredibly dedicated medical and non-medical volunteers. And uh, it it really is amazing to see. This year's kids are particularly challenging. 
Um, you know, thank God medical care has advanced dramatically the last many years, and and these individuals are living much longer lives, uh, thank goodness. And uh, although they're living longer, they also become more challenging to care for as time goes on, and we've discovered that by experience. Uh, but we can't back down from that challenge because, quite frankly, these kids and young adults are entitled to everything that we're all entitled to. You know, I uh, I went on vacation to uh, Phoenix this year with my family for Pesach, and I can't help but, you know, tell you that I told my children over and over again, and they're older already, uh, you have to feel privileged that you can get on a plane and travel with your family without any hassle as opposed to what we do all year with the couragers. It's not easy when you have a sick kid or a disabled kid. Uh, to get on an airplane and to spend eight days, you know, with everything you need at, at your fingertips. Is the airline ready for next week? Yeah, so this year we're doing, once again, group flights, uh, a couple of large group flights uh, to uh, Phoenix. It, it, it Logistically, it just worked out better. We actually, our, one of our logistic chiefs, Sammy Gertner, had an incredible meeting yesterday at, with American Airlines at JFK. He's meeting with them at Newark on on Friday as well. Uh, and they are bending over backwards. They're terrified. <laughs> the airline, <laughs> I don't blame we them. Ne- we, we've never flown with American as a large group before, so this is a first time for them. Uh, but we're, you know, that we're training them. And uh, present at that meeting, not only was all of the American Airlines uh, administration needed, but also TSA was present uh, to make special arrangements so we can bring through all our medications and equipment. And um, it was about a six-hour meeting with a lot of detail that had to go down, and that's what it takes to take a group this size. It's unbelievable. And how do you explain average kids – I hope they're not going to be insulted by that moniker Mm – average kids in our community taking on this type of responsibility? Uh, I might encourage somebody who's in their upper teens or low 20s to avoid these types of situations because, seriously, because sometimes there there are life-threatening situations that might be beyond them. Yeah, so that's why, as I told the staff at orientation last night, we are surrounded by great and well-trained medical staff, including this trip, four physicians, uh, four paramedics, EMTs, uh, medical logistics, and 11 nurses uh, that are coming on the trip. So thank God there's always somebody within 30 seconds of any emergency, uh, and we reassure the staff about that. Uh, we spend a lot of time training uh, for, to account for those emergencies. So, yeah, it takes a special 18 to 22 or 23-year-old volunteer to wrap themselves around that. But I have to tell you that 99% of them come through with flying colors because they're a very special group of people. I, I don't want to minimize that, you know, and I, I've said it to you often. When I was that age, I did not have the interest or the drive to to do things like this. So right. I, I think when I say the future for the Jewish world is good, uh, I really mean it because these are really incredible young volunteers. They really, they're, they're the best of the best. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've seen them up close uh, operate within the Kids of Courage uh, operation, and I cannot agree with you more. Just unbelievable. All right. Um, As you said earlier, uh, the trip leaves Wednesday. Uh, Everybody out there, listen carefully. Over 130 couragers with a very, very large staff, a lot of personnel. You can only imagine to to take a step, to just consider going to an amusement park or going to an attraction or spending the day outside the hotel. You're talking about a 
you're talking about a, 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 a need to mobilize. You're literally mobilizing like yeah. a, an entire army of people in order to get this done, right? It's a very uh, incredible dysfunctional army. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we ask, and we ask everybody in this audience, and everybody that uh, is willing to share it on social media and other venues, to please support the work of Kids of Courage. Support this trip. Support the efforts of uh, Dr. D and his incredible staff and all these unbelievable volunteers uh, giving not only uh, Jewish kids an opportunity to do something unique and and participate in one of the greatest acts of chesed you've ever seen, but giving uh, uh, kids in our community who would never have, because of their disabilities and because of their situation and illnesses, would never have an opportunity to do all this fun, incredible stuff and be together for a week in an environment that we just described. Give them the chance to do that. You could go, donate right now by going to kidsoc.org, kidsoc.org. There's a Donate Now button right there on the homepage, kidsoc.org. And we ask you to be as generous as possible and, uh, and let this trip uh, stand on the good, solid financial ground and let Dr. D and his staff provide an incredible journey for well-deserving kids in our community. So, again, go to kidsoc.org. The Donate Now button is right there on the homepage. Also, a lot of information. I see Dr. Dietrich, you have, you have photos and descriptions and stories. You have a lot of stuff on the website. People who want to explore more about what you do, it's right there. Yeah, and the social media pages are especially vibrant these days, uh, uh, Facebook and Instagram, where the kids actually go to post their, you know, their stories and, and their challenges. And over the trip, they actually go there to post their pictures uh, uh, which is really something everybody can follow. The kids are very proud of their accomplishment uh, on these trips, so I encourage people to become part of the social media family. You know, it's it's actually one of the rare uses of kosher use of social media because uh, the kids use it as a place where they can celebrate their their accomplishments on the trips and after the trip. So I encourage people to go visit there and, and see what the kids are up to. And you, just, and you just pointed out something really important. The kids themselves are accomplishing things that they have never been able to do before. They're proud of the fact that they can go ahead and physically undertake the type of day that Kids of Courage is giving them because normally they wouldn't be able to do it. No. They, these, the biggest killer of, of human beings in this world is boredom and depression. Those are the two killers. Uh, so when when folks have something to look forward to and to get motivated about, it gives them tremendous chizuk to go forward. So what we're trying to solve with our organization is that challenge of boredom. And once the trip is over, then what they're left with are the relationships they develop on the trip, both with other campers and with staff members. So it's critical that people understand these trips are not just about eight days. Uh, it's about the whole year and making sure that the kids have what to look forward to and they have who to talk to and to be part of their lives. So, you know, boredom is, is a terrible, terrible disease that we, we, we can really uh, make our communities aware of. When you're challenged with an illness, we're always faced with a lot of people who want to help, and they're great people. But often over time, people disappear because their own lives have to continue. So these kids are often left with challenges socially, and we're trying to solve that. And I think we're doing it successfully because the kids are living much longer and much better lives. Amazing. Uh, good luck next week. I hope our audience responds and, and helps out with some uh, with some financial support. Go to kidsoc.org, kids 
OC.org to uh, help kids of courage. The donate button is right there on the homepage. And Dr. D, we've been there. So send our regards to the staff and to the couragers uh, and encourage them to uh, just go out there and have an amazing time next week. Thank you so much, Nachum, for your support and, and your, your words of uh, encouragement. It means a lot to all of us. It really does. A pleasure. Good luck. I know it's going to be some uh, crazy days ahead, so good luck. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Dr. Stuart Ditchick, who is the founder of Kids of Courage. Uh, it's a unique traveling camp. This is how it's described. For critically ill children who are given a chance to disconnect from their daily struggles and experience freedom and adventure like every child. Under strict medical supervision, they visit parks and attractions, bond with new friends, meet celebrities, and experience the dream and wish trip of a lifetime. you got to see it to believe it. I have seen it. I encourage all of you to support it. Kidsoc.org. Kidsoc.org. More coming up. You are listening to a uh, Wednesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. And we will continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture regarding the Vilni Goan and the Balhatanya. This is JM in the AM. In, in Chumash, for instance, the Malbim, the Ksav, the Kabbalah, the Or Sameach, the all of the, the, the Nitziv of Alojin, the Hamikdover, all of them are based upon the idea of the Goan that it's all in the text. And don't tell me... Uh, commentaries and don't look from the outside the Torah tells us its story from the inside and if you know grammar Hebrew because the Torah is grammatically correct the source of perfect grammar and when there is any a diversion from the correct grammar then the Torah is telling you something and that's why the rabbis and the Talmud derived all of their halachas. That Torah Shabal is based upon that understanding. So uh, the Gon is the, uh, the great influence in halacha. Even though we don't have any halachics for him from him. Now we come to uh, the Valatanya. The Balatanya is, uh, to a certain extent, the opposite of Gon. The Balatanya is a public figure. He's a Rebbe. He deals with thousands of people. He's a public figure. He uh, writes in his introduction, he wrote a famous halachic work called the Shulchan Aruch Harav, it's called. This halachic Shulchan Aruch uh, is uh, accepted by everybody. It's not, there are certain things that are the province of Chabad, but there are many things that are universal that have uh, broken out of the uh, narrower confines of uh, Chabad or even Hasidus and are universally accepted. His Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch Arav, is a universal book. What happened with the Shulchan Aruch? Why do, what does he have to write another Shulchan Aruch for? Well, because the first Shulchan Aruch, as I'm, we discussed last week, the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah, told you what to do. 
this is how a Jew, you know, you want to put on film, this is film, this is how you put it on, this is when you put it on, this is what you, etc. In a sense, the book was a handbook. The book was not meant to be a source of research. Came the Jewish people never leave well enough alone. So there came the commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch, enormous commentaries, so that the Shulchan Aruch became not a handbook. It's not something that a person can pick up and read and decide anything from because of the fact that it is burdened by all of these commentaries. If you look at the page of the Shulchan Aruch, there are six, eight, ten commentaries on every page. And if you really want to know how to deal in halacha, you have to know all of those commentaries. And they have the unfortunate habit of not agreeing one with another. And and the research involved and everything so that the Shulchan Aruch became again the province of scholars and of super scholars. So, uh, for instance, in Orachayim, in the laws regarding everyday life, so we have the Mogen Avraham, and we have the Taz, and we have the Be'er Hetev, and we have the Machsis Ashekel, and we have uh, Kiva Eger, and we, by the time you're done with one page, you know, you've... Uh, You've been through half of the Talmud. So the Shulchan Aruch no longer became usable to the average Jew. Reb Shneur Zalman is a disciple of the Maggid of Meserich, not of the Baal Shem Tov. Of the Maggid of Meserich. The Dovber of Meserich. Uh, he writes in his introduction... I just want to read it to you. Al Kain, da'atainu t'ktsora lavo be'arucha be'iyun yama Talmud. We no longer have the ability to study the Talmud uh, with with uh, great analysis. Va'poskim leida motzodin, and to know where the poskim. Uh, got hold of their uh, why they made these decisions and therefore he said my Rebbe the Magid of Meserich asked me to write a Shulchan Aruch for people so to speak a popular version but one that would include and there is the uh, the uh, uniqueness of this. First of all, the order, tremendously clear order, not necessarily following the order of the Shulchan Aruch. Secondly, the reason for the halacha, not just what the halacha is, but the reason for it. And then finally, the clear decision as to how to proceed. I'll give you an example. Uh, the halacha is that uh, what if uh, Ruvain comes over to Shimon and he says, you know, I want you to punch me in the mouth. I'll give you permission to punch me in the mouth. I want you to do it. 
if we want to expand it, we say, let's say, uh, Ruvain is a uh, professional boxer. And Shimon is a professional boxer. There's two Jews that are, and they're both Orthodox Jews. There's an Orthodox Jew now in the United States that's a world champion, Russian. Don't ask me how that, you know, who gave him permission, etc. but that's anyway. So are you allowed to do it? Are you allowed to punch him? So the uh, Shulchan Harav says, you're not allowed. Why? So the Shulchan also says, you're not allowed. Okay, and done. Why? Says, because he gives you the philosophic reason. Ein la'odom rishus al gufo klal. A person does not own his own body. Velochein osur lahaniach es chavero afilu hu nosein lo rishus lahakoso. Even if somebody gives permission to hit him, you're not allowed to hit him because he has no right to let you. He doesn't own his body, right? And that is his explanation that you don't own your body. If you'll think about it, so then many other halachas fall into place. It's not yours. Uh, that's a machlekes later, you know, the minchas chinuch and the uh, shagas others disagree with him. But he says clearly the rule that you don't... Uh, so it's not just that he said the halacha, he gave you the reason for the halacha. Uh, it says by uh, by Pesach, the Seder, let's uh, take a practical example. So it says that when you come home from shul, or when you come down to, from the room in the hotel... We are going to get to the conclusion of uh, the Vilna Gon and the Balatanya, as uh, related to us by Barrel bar Wine, um, just after the top of the hour, after our next guest here on the air at JM and the AM. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, one 800 499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You could also go to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com, for his full catalog, everything you'd expect from a brilliant historian and great lecturer. It's all there, and uh, we highly recommend it. So 1-800-499. Yeah, it's all on downloads, MP3s, the whole thing. No more cassettes and CDs. Uh, 1-800-499. 499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. It's Wednesday, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. With us live via telephone is Jenna Beltzer. She's founding director of the OU's Impact Accelerator. Uh, the Orthodox Union has launched the application process for the second cohort of its Impact Accelerator program to rapidly identify and invest in ventures addressing current and future Jewish communal interest, interests. Uh, Jenna Beltzer, welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning, awesome. Thank you so much for having me back again. A pleasure. Now in its second year, I'm very excited to be speaking about the OU Impact Accelerator. Um, as you mentioned, we're looking to invest in new Jewish nonprofits over a 12-month program 
which will include mentorship and education and training. Um, and we just opened the second application process actually this, this July, and it's open until September 5th this year. How did it do the first time around? How do you look back and evaluate how this effort went the first time you did it? Thank God. So we, we selected five ventures last year, and we worked with them over a 12-month um, education period where each of the organizations came into the OU to our headquarters, and we had four on-site sessions that were three days each, and we had seminars on running a nonprofit, operations, budgeting, um, fundraising, everything that you can imagine that is necessary in order to run a nonprofit successfully is also really run a business successfully. Um, each of the organizations has grown tremendously. Some of them have you know, more than doubled or tripled their fundraising. Some of them have more than doubled and tripled their, um, their client reach. So really, thank God, we've seen amazing success um, from, the, from the organizations that were selected from this first round. And we're very excited to be back in um, back in it for our second cohort this year all right the first one i remind everybody uh, the ones that were the i don't know what do we call them winners <laughs> those were that were designated for this program They're definitely winners in our eyes so that's, <laughs> that's for sure. fine to call them that <laughs> <laughs> so the first time around the hum of comfort dealing with families and supporting families who've suffered miscarriage stillbirth or infant loss grow torah developing educational torah garden programs for jewish schools and organizations work at it helping at-risk youth uh, Imadi, power, empowering individuals and families facing mental health difficulties, and Torah anytime, enabling Jews to access Torah lectures from a wide array of speakers uh, via the Internet. And you're saying every one of these you've watched over the last year uh, grow, become bigger, have a better fundraising base, and really take advantage of the fact that they were teamed up with you through this process. Exactly. That's to- they totally have. So there's really different... Um, a few different components to the the education process that we have. I like to think of the accelerator in three different separate phases. So we have the selection process, which we're going through now. Right. Um, we have the education process, and then we have what we call graduation, which is coming up soon, which will be um, a demo day for them to showcase the organizations as well as you know a continued alumni community where we'll have continued growth and learning. Jenna, but as part oh, of the ed- sorry, go ahead. As part of the education process, we have. Um, we, select, we pair them with mentors, professional mentors, and people who have been successful in our community to provide them kind of one-on-one advice for specific things that they need. We also have seminars, like I mentioned, at the OU, where they learn as a group um, and really as a cohort about different topics that are more general and everyone would need in order to grow. And then also having the OU um, really as a backing and to be able to connect with the different departments, the different specialties, and the OU itself has had you know, 120 years, 121 years now of running a successful nonprofit. So being able to leverage the resources and the experience that the OU has had has really, I think, what has informed each of these organizations for their, um, for their own growth. And more than anything, what we've seen is that learning from each other and building this community of practice, really, between the, these nonprofit founders who are doing all amazing work in our community but now are able to connect and share their own skills and, and talents has been really wonderful as well and really added to a lot of their growth, too. Jenna Beltzer is with us. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have any recollection how many applicants you had last year? Yes, we had 57 um, applicants last year, and we chose five um, organizations. And already this year, we opened the application on July 15th. And like I mentioned, it's closing um, September 5th. 
this year, and the application is available on our website, ou.org slash accelerator. And we've already had over 100 people who've requested to apply. So mm. people, you fill out an application request saying just briefly what you do, um, you know, your contact information, et cetera, then you get sent the long-form the long form application. And we've already had over 100 of those in just a few weeks. So it's very <laughs> exciting to see um, to see the program grow and, and God willing, amazing uh, ventures come through again. Should one study the five winners from last year in order to get a perspective of what you and the judges might be looking for this time around? Uh, they for sure should study them. I think just in terms of thinking of, you know, each of the organizations more than anything, they kind of, they fit within the, the main um, criteria of what we're looking for. So we're looking for Jewish nonprofit entrepreneurs who are catering to the North American Jewish community, um, ideally who are in somewhat of a startup stage, so one to four years old. They're not just an idea, just, um, you know, have an idea and have not gotten started, and they're not too mature that they really have a lot of the tools that they already need to go. Um, and they're, they're addressing critical issues of our community through innovative solutions. So I think by studying and looking through the organizations that we chose, you would, you would definitely see some of that. Um, I think even just seeing their growth over the year could be encouraging. And definitely, I know, um, I know that each of the organizations and the founders as well would be happy to speak with anyone um, who's interested in applying. If they, you know, if they don't find enough information on our website and want to hear it firsthand, I think I could set them up with, with a few people to speak about the experience. I, I got to tell you, you've, ex you've really explained this well because, uh, you know, there are people out there wondering if what they're doing, you know, again, how long they've been in existence. You recommended one to four years, the type of work they're doing. Are they based in North America, helping communities, you know, within the confines of this continent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I, I think these are really important guidelines. Anybody out there who feels that they, in fact, fall within these guidelines, I strongly recommend, as do you, I'm sure, Jenna, that they get to the website, ou.org slash accelerator. They have an opportunity to be awarded a $25,000 a grant, and in addition, get all this help from the OU and really uh, get assistance in helping the effort or and or the organization uh, grow uh, over the next year, and uh, and applications are due by September the 5th, as you mentioned, uh, ou.org slash accelerator. Again, anybody out there who, if you're operating within the uh, uh, confines of these guidelines, uh, you got to be nuts not to uh, not to apply and uh, try to get the, both this grant and all the help that the OU is offering. I think that's a pretty direct way of saying it, huh? <laughs> Very direct. Thanks for the plug. You got to be crazy if you're in existence for one to four years and you're trying your hardest to have an impact on the Jewish community in North America. You got to be crazy not to apply and see if both financially and in terms of support, uh, you're going to end up getting a lot of help. All right. OU.org slash accelerator. All the information is there, the application, et cetera. Uh, applications are due by September the 5th, and we are strongly recommending to anybody that falls within the confines of these guidelines to get to it AS. AP. Jenna Belcher, I'm assuming after September 5th, you have a lot of work choosing the winners. Then after that, I guess you end up setting up all these support systems for these organizations, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, the, the work is, is definitely um, is waiting for us now, but it's, it's very exciting work to see even just the people who, you know, we obviously are very excited about the people who we select for the cohort, but even just not, um, you know, we do try to help with different resources or just when things come up, we try to connect people with different things. Um, so it's exciting to see all the amazing work that people are doing in order to really help our community and to reach out and 
to, to make the community, um, you know, a brighter place. So it's very inspiring, even though it's, it's definitely a lot of work uh, come September 5th and reading all the applications and reviewing, et cetera. Um, the process actually goes where we have an online application, which is what people are completing now. Then we interview the top applicants, and then we select the, the the final cohort after a pitch night where each of them um, pitched, you know, to a group right. of people. And, um, and that's where we choose the final cohort. So definitely the work begins, but it, it's very inspiring and it rewarding. Mu- at it, mu- it must kill you to reject people because there's so much good work going on out there. It's really hard. It's definitely really hard. It is, I, I mean, it's really a, it's really um, a beautiful thing to see in our community that right. so many people are doing such amazing work. Yeah, so, that's true. A lot of good sure. work out there. All right. Jenna Belzer is founding director of OU Impact Accelerator. Go to the website, ou.org slash accelerator. You have till September 5th to get those applications in. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to speak with you. A pleasure. You're doing amazing work. Wednesday morning broadcast. Plenty more coming up here at uh, JM in the AM. As we continue on this uh, on this Wednesday, keep it right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And uh, as we uh, as we mentioned, we are going to continue with our lecture bar by Barrel Wine and actually uh, allow it to conclude this time. He's speaking about the Vilna Goen and the Balatanya. Rabbi Barrel Wine, his lecture is available at one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N and RabbiWine dot com. Once this lecture ends, we'll get into the community calendar and all the different things that are happening. Uh, for the rest of the nine days, and of course, Tishabov, all coming up here at JM in the AM. Writes in his introduction, he wrote a famous halachic work called the Shulchan Aruch Harav, it's called. This halachic Shulchan Aruch uh, is uh, accepted by everybody. It's not, there are certain things that are the province of Chabad, but there are many things that are universal that have broken out of the uh, narrower confines of uh, Chabad or even Hasidus and are universally accepted. His Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch Arav, is a universal book. What happened with the Shulchan Aruch? Why, what does he have to write another Shulchan Aruch for? Well, because the first Shulchan Aruch, as I'm, we discussed last week, the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah, told you what to do. This is how a Jew, you know, you want to put on film, this is film, this is how you put it on, this is when you put it on, this is what you, etc. In a sense, the book was a handbook. The book was not meant to be a source of research. Came the Jewish people never leave well enough alone. So there came the commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch, enormous commentaries, so that the Shulchan Aruch became not a handbook. It's not something that a person can pick up and read and decide anything from because of the fact that it is burdened by all of these commentaries. If you look at the page, Now, the Shulchan Aruch, there are six, eight, ten commentaries on every page. And if you really want to know how to deal in halacha, you have to know all of those commentaries. And they have the unfortunate habit of not agreeing one with another. And and the research involved and everything so that the Shulchan Aruch became, again, the province of scholars and of super-scholars. 
So, uh, if, for instance, in Orachayim, in the laws regarding everyday life, so we have the Mogen Avraham, and we have the Taz, and we have the Be'er Hetev, and we have the Machzis HaShekel, and we have uh, Kiva Eger, and we, by the time you're done with one page, you know, you've, uh, you've been through half of the Talmud. So the Shulchan Aruch no longer became usable to the average Jew. Reb Shneur Zalman is a disciple of the Maggid of Meserich, not of the Baal Shem Tov. Of the Maggid of Meserich. The Dov Bear of Meserich. Uh, he writes in his introduction, I just want to read it to you. Alkain, da'atainu t'ktsora lavo be'arucha be'iyun yama Talmud. We no longer have the ability to study the Talmud uh, with with uh, great analysis. Va'poskim leida motzodin, and to know where the poskim uh, got hold of their uh, why they made these decisions, and therefore he said, my Rebbe. The Magid of Meserich asked me to write a Shulchan Aruch for people. So to speak, a popular version. But one that would include, and there is the the, uh, uniqueness of this. First of all, the order, tremendously clear order, not necessarily following the order of the Shulchan Aruch. Secondly, the reason for the halacha, not just what the halacha is, but the reason for it. And then finally, the clear decision as to how to proceed. I'll give you an example. Uh, the halacha is that uh, what if uh, Ruvain comes over to Shimon and he says, you know, I want you to punch me in the mouth. I give you permission to punch me in the mouth. I want you to do it. So if we want to expand it, we say, let's say, uh, Ruvain is a professional boxer. And Shimon is a professional boxer. There's two Jews that are, and they're both Orthodox Jews. They're an Orthodox Jew now in the United States that's a world champion, Russian. Don't ask me how that, you know, who gave him permission, etc. But that's anyway. So are you allowed to do it? Are you allowed to punch him? So the uh, Shulchan Aruch says, you're not allowed. Why? So the Shulchan Aruch also says, you're not allowed. Okay, and done. Why? Says, because he gives you the philosophic reason. A person does not own his own body. Even if somebody gives permission to hit him, 
you're not allowed to hit him because he has no right to let you. He doesn't own his body, right? And that is his explanation that you don't own your body. If you'll think about it, so then many other halachas fall into place. It's not yours. Uh, that's a machlekes later, you know, the minchas chinuch and uh, the shagas Others disagree with him, but he says clearly the rule that you don't. Uh, so it's not just that he said the halacha; he gave you the reason for the halacha. Uh, it says by uh, by Pesach, the seder. Let's uh, take a practical example. Uh, it says that when you come home from shul or when you come down to, from the room in the hotel. So you should start the Seder immediately. So uh, in the Shulchan Aruch it says you should start it so that you can get to the food right away. And so that the children won't fall asleep. So, but he changes that. He says he should start, what it means, you should start the Seder immediately and the children shouldn't fall asleep. Not because by the time you come to the food, the children are all asleep already, he says. That's not the problem. The problem is they should stay awake to ask the four questions. So you got to get there right away. And that's the reason why you have to start the Seder right away. And the, uh, he has many, many ideas such as this. He discusses why... Uh, the two days of Rosh Hashanah, which everybody discusses, the Gemara already discusses, two days of Rosh Hashanah. So Shema Yavoa Edim, witnesses will come, and they'll say the moon was later, and therefore we'll have to make it the second day. So the Gemara says, the Lo'osel is that the people won't come to treat it lightly. So therefore they made it two days. So Rashi says, means the next year. Next year, people will say, listen, they made us wait till the second day. Last year, we remember that, so we forget about the first day. We'll only keep the second day because we know already from last year how the rabbis do this. He says a different, uh, he says that's not the correct uh, interpretation. He says, that what it means, means that since the day Min HaTorah could have been Rosh Hashanah, except the rabbis pushed it off. For whatever the rabbis can push off a day in the calendar, for whatever reason. But Min HaTorah, the day should have been yesterday. Since Min HaTorah, the day should have been we don't want to cheapen it and say it's not yontiv. So even though the rabbis pushed it to the second day, the first day retains its holiness because of the possibility, because it was ro'uy, it was possible that it should be the day of yontiv. And he has many, many examples of that in the Shulchan Aruch Harav, of uh, not just giving the law, but explaining the law explaining why, and uh, that uh, would go a long way in understanding why that became such a popular book. He, to a certain extent, like the Gon, was the father of later things, 
He's also the father of later things. The Mishnah Brewer, the Orch HaShulchan, the Kitzur Shulchan Orch, all of that is based upon the fact that he broke this ground. He said, you know, that the, we have to somehow go past the Shulchan Aruch and make a work that's acceptable and understandable to this generation, not burdened again with all of the commentaries. However, what has happened in our time, as always happens with the Jewish people, is that the Mishnah Brura became a scholarly work. And now there are commentaries to the Mishnah Brura. So that therefore it also, uh, to a certain extent, is no longer the uh, popular book, but it uh, also became the realm of the scholarly. We'll talk about it next week when we talk about the Mishnah Brura and the Orch HaShulchan. There are certain innovations in halacha that uh, the Balatanya introduced, with some of which have been accepted universally, some of which have remained pretty much with Chabad. Uh, again, let's stay with Pesach, because that's where in the season. We sell the Chomets to the non-Jew. The whole evolution of the Chiras Chomets from the time of the Talmud to our time, so let's say the Israeli rabbinate sells all the chomets in Israel to one non-Jew. Well, you got maybe a billion dollars worth of chomets, right? The non-Jew, it's very hard to find the billionaire that's willing to buy chomets from you. Usually they get, you know, the guy that's the, 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 the guy that cleans up in the office, right? There's somebody, you know, he's the one that they have. I used to have a janitor in Miami Beach when I was the rabbi. And I remember the first year I was the rabbi, I told him, to, Jules, you know, I need you. Erev Pesach, we're going to sell the chomets. I want you to buy it. And he refused. And I was shocked. And I said, why? He said, my father told me if the Jews are selling, you don't buy. So he's got, he owes a billion dollars, okay? How can he pay the billion dollars? What happens to make the transaction legal? So today we can understand it in terms of electronic banking. But the Gemara, the, uh, the Chazal had this idea long before, Zuk of the Milve. We loan him the million dollars, the billion dollars, whatever he needs. Electronically, we transfer it to his account. The only thing is that he owes us the money. And then after Pesach, when he can't pay back the money, so then we say, well, since you can't pay back the money, we're going to buy all of this back from you. If you agree to sell it to us, and he always does, because he doesn't have the money to pay off the loan. That's oversimplified, but that's, that's the procedure. So the, the, he raises the problem... Uh, what do you mean you lend him a billion dollars? Why should you lend him a billion dollars? Where's his credit rating? So therefore he says he needs guarantors, Jewish guarantors that guarantee the loan. An Orif Koblen. And usually the Orif Koblen used to be 
the most substantial person in town. And that therefore we're lending the money to the non-Jew, but we're doing it with a security that what? That the Or of Kablan, that the guarantor stands behind the loan. So that lends a greater legitimacy to the sale. So the custom here in Jerusalem, the custom in many places in the world is to use an Or of Kablan. Aside from uh, the, the loan to the non-Jew, we have a Jew that becomes the guarantor. So that's an innovation of, in halacha of the, of the Balatanya, of Ebshneir Zalman, that's been accepted. He has also the question of whether in a mikveh, so a mikveh has the bathing pool, but it has... The, the bathing pool always is city water. It's not kosher water. But it's attached to a real mikveh, which is rainwater or spring water. And uh, through uh, the opening of a conduit between the two, between the bathing pool and between the real mikveh, the waters touch. Uh, the word that is used is kiss. And therefore, the water in the bathing pool also becomes kosher water, so to speak. That's how, again, vast oversimplification of how the mikveh works. So, he always claimed that there has to be this, the real mikveh has to be under the bathing pool. In other words, it's, it's vertical. And most of the world holds that it is on the side. So that remains today an issue uh, all over the world. Uh, the Chabad insists that mikvahs be on the bottom and the uh, rest of the world has the mikveh on the side. And in many communities that causes uh, rifts and problems. But uh, that was uh, his innovation. That's what he required. He uh, also, as the Gon, uh, he followed the idea that uh, there should be no piyutim. The Gon took away all the piyutim so that, uh, for instance, uh, we in, in our modern uh, prayer service, even our Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, say very few extra prayers. Whereas uh, the Jews in the 16th century and the 17th century had pages and pages and pages of extra piyutim. There were piyutim for, uh, for, for every Sabbath even, and especially for the four special parshas. The Gon did away with all of that. The Balatani also did away with it. The Balatani also doesn't say Vishomru. The Balatani took Nusachari, which is a Kabbalistic Nusach, and he made that in the Nusach of Tfilah, uh, and remains today amongst the Chabad Chusidim as being its Nusach because it, it, it was Kabbalistically oriented. Uh, the Balatanya is a great expert in Kabbalah, and he is a Kabbalist, whereas the Gon wasn't a Kabbalist, but was an expert in Kabbalah. There's a difference between the two. There arose a great uh, dispute on uh, the knives that were used for, by the ritual slaughterers, by the shochte. In the uh, 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, 
uh, steel came into being. Until then, all of the knives were made from iron. Now, the knife of a shochet has to be at one and the same time sharp and smooth. Well, that's a hard combination to achieve because if you make it sharp, usually it's not very smooth. It's rough. And if you make it smooth, then it's pretty dull. And this was a problem that always existed uh, regarding these iron knives. When the steel knives came in to being, so now you were much much more able to produce a knife that was uh, both smooth and sharp. And the chassidim adopted it. Now, yeah, I've mentioned many times before that chassidus in its earliest form was the most uh, open to technological and uh, different things. It was not conservative. It was radical in many respects. So they used these types of polished knives, they called them. And the misnagdim opposed them on it, opposed them greatly on it. It was one of the... Uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the Chayrim against the, the Chassidim. So uh, he uh, defended the uh, use of these knives. Not only he defended it, he said uh, that uh, he heard from Reb Chaim Valozhin. He didn't speak to him, he said, but he heard from Reb Chaim Valozhin. And Reb Chaim Valozhin says that the Gon also said that the knives are good but that they opposed it because of the other things in Chesidus. They didn't want to do anything that Chesidim did. And that that's why they opposed it. But he said, now in our time, when the matter has cooled down a little, and it's not, or it's, the harem has failed, and therefore he said there's absolutely no problem. But then he put it on a halachic basis. There's such a thing that's called a very small pegima. Now, pegima is that there is a roughness in the, in the knife. Now, you can never get the knife 100%, right? So we get it 99%. Especially today, we use stainless steel, surgical steel, uh, the same steel that uh, surgeons use uh, in their knives. So that it's uh, technologically, we have the best sheet that we've ever had probably in the history of the Jewish people. I didn't say shochtim, but the best shchita that we've ever had. Simply because we have these knives, we have all of these things that exist today. Same thing is true of the circumcision knives. So he uh, he said that the misnagdim hold that even lachatchila, there can be a little roughness in the knife. Alpi halocha. And he said, the chesidim hold that there shouldn't be any roughness at all. And therefore, that's why they use these knives. And he said, but, he said, there is no reason that we should not be able to eat the meat of the misnagdim, he writes. And there's no reason, he writes in one place, that we should have to have our own separate uh, services, our own separate minyonim but that we can live our lives and we can have one synagogue together. That did not work. But he saw himself as a great peacemaker. 
and he uh, wrote many letters to his Hasidim not to engage in polemics, not to engage in the dispute, to let, to let it rest, to let it be buried. His famous statement, which he wrote in the letter, was that I wanted to go and see the Gon of Vilna. If I would have seen him, then he said the whole war would never have occurred. I would have been able to convince him that we're not a cult or a sect or doing something wrong. He said, but the Gon wouldn't let me in the door. If you know the Gon, you can understand that he wouldn't let him in the door, even if he wasn't coming to talk to him about Hasidus. The Gon didn't, you know, that wasn't his world. And uh, the struggle, he writes a whole letter against uh, the Hasidim that uh, informed against the Misnagdim to the Russian government. He himself was a victim of being informed against. He was twice put into prison. Uh, the Russian government enjoyed the war between the Jews. They didn't care who won. They persecuted both sides equally. So he was a peacemaker. But in Halacha, he is the father of all of the modern books in Halacha to try and simplify Halacha and to place it in front of the Jewish people in a form that's acceptable, understandable, concise, and uh, that, that is really a great achievement, one that lasts until today. This Jam in the AM with Rai Barrel Wine on the Vilna Goen and the uh, Balatanya. And the um, information is at 1-800-499-WEIN for Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And we'll have more in just a couple of moments. I want to remind everybody that we have uh, some events going on in the Jewish world. Tonight at 8 p.m. at the home of the Mandel family on Westminster Avenue in Bergenfield, an event co-hosted by the Mandel and Lieberman families. It's Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson speaking on behalf of Just One Life. Uh, we spoke to Rabbi Marty Katz yesterday, Just One Life, doing amazing work. Information at 347-996-7751 or justonelife.org. Amit has their Yom Iyun this morning, one hour from now, at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst with Razi Chechik, the head of school at Manhattan Day School, her topic, Letters Floating in the Air, the story of the woman who printed the Vilna Talmud. Lunch will follow. Register amitchildren.org slash yomiyun, amitchildren.org slash yomiyun. The bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center happens tomorrow starting at 11 a.m. and Friday starting at 10.30 at Breezy's Dimples at 554 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Again, that's 554 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst for the uh, bake sale in support of the Lone Soldier Center. I remind you that our live Tisha B'Av program is going to be happening this coming Sunday. Uh, Tisha B'Av is being observed this coming Sunday. And we will have a um, presentation from the New Springville Jewish Center. You can watch the entire thing at NahumSiegel.com. You can uh, log on to the NSN app. And listen to the entire program. You can hear it on our listen line as well. New Springville Jewish Center at 120 Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. They will dive in Shacharis at 825. At 915, they have five presentations about Kinnis, Shlomo Y. Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz, Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, Rabbi Leo Sonnenschein, and Rabbi Yosef Siegel. They'll be speaking at 1215. Mayor Simcha Siegel 
with thoughts about Tisha B'Av, and at 1 o'clock, Rabbi Yaakov Lairfield with thoughts about Tisha B'Av. Mincha will be at 2 o'clock. Again, the entire program live at NachumSiegel.com this coming Sunday, beginning at 9.15. And uh, you could hear it on the NSN app. You could hear it on our listen line. And, of course, you could watch the entire thing on your browser at NachumSiegel.com. Uh, Sunday at the Isaiah Wall, it's 2 p.m. Mincha, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street, 2 p.m. Mincha. Uh, for Israel and Jews in danger around the world, it's the annual Tisha B'Av Mincha service. Again, that's at the uh, Isaiah Wall opposite the United Nations, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street. Full Mincha with Torah reading and more, led by Stephen Exler of the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. Bring your sitter, your talus, your tefillin, etc. Information, 212-663-5784, 5784 Want to wish a happy birthday to Yaakov Arbach. Yaakov Arbach is celebrating a birthday today, both his Hebrew and English birthday. So we say happy birthday from all of us here at JM in the AM. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to mention that was a Project Witness. Uh, they have a showing today at the Raleigh Hotel in South Fallsburg, 2 o'clock, 4.30 and 8 o'clock, the brand-new documentary is called In the Footsteps of the Giant, and that will be a Catskills uh, showing for girls, again, 2 o'clock, 4.30, and 8 o'clock. Uh, for boys, they'll be in the Catskills today at Camp Tashbar in Liberty. That is uh, 2.30 p.m. today in the Footsteps of the Giant. Ateris Chinka, they're showing it for women at 5 o'clock and at 8 o'clock, and they're showing it for men at 8 p.m. at a Tereschinka tonight on Elmwood Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. In Baltimore, B'nai Jacob Shari Zion is showing it at 7.30 this evening. And in Chicago, it's tomorrow night beginning at 7.30 at KINS on West North Shore Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. Go to projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org. You can get info, info about all of the documentary showings that are going on today and tomorrow. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine, a lecture, uh, a lecture entitled Mesilas Yesharim from the series entitled Essential Classics. Here he is on a Wednesday morning broadcast of J.M. in the A.M., Mesilas Yesharim at J.M. in the A.M. Uh, we are accustomed in the Jewish world uh, that people uh, make the difference, and that certainly is true, but also... Uh, as I hope this series will illustrate, there are books that make a difference as well. And uh, books have a, a cumulative effect. A person, uh, under all circumstances, has a limited lifespan. And because of that, his generation, or maybe even the next generation, can benefit from that person. But uh, 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years later, uh, no one remembers the person. And therefore, uh, the person's influence, to a certain extent, is diffused. It's mitigated. However, books are pretty much eternal. Uh, so that even after a few hundred years, uh, the book itself is still here. And its influence is still present, 
and can be considered uh, alive, so to speak, because of its uh, value and currency. Uh, the two main books that we know in the Jewish world are naturally the Bible, the Tanakh, and the Talmud. Those two books are the basis of uh, Judaism as we know it. But these are other books uh, of a different nature which uh, have a profound influence on the Jewish world. Tonight's uh, book, uh, the one that I'm going to discuss tonight, is the Mesilat Yesharim, uh, the book that was written by Ramosha Chaim Litzato, uh, published uh, close to 300 years ago. Uh, Moshe Chaim Litzato, just a, uh, as a whole uh, biography of him that I once spoke about, but uh, it, uh, he lived a very controversial and short life, a very tragic life. Uh, he was uh, a Kabbalist at a time when uh, there was great persecution of Kabbalists because of the Shabsite Svi disaster. Uh, he was misunderstood. Uh, he was placed into Cherem, first in Italy, later in France. He was driven into uh, Holland, where he was a lens grinder. And uh, then he was forced to leave Holland because his uh, enemies pursued him. Uh, Jewish people are a tough people. We wouldn't be here if we weren't, but on the other hand, it's not easy to be with the Jewish people, especially if you're a different type of person. And he was a different type of person. He did not have a beard. He uh, wrote plays. Uh, he, uh, he was very, very spiritual. And uh, he came, therefore, he uh, migrated to the land of Israel came to the city of uh, Tzfat and later Tiberias. And then the cholera epidemic uh, that broke out, he and his entire family died. And he was uh, about 42 years old when that happened. So uh, we wouldn't know anything about him because in his generation he was not uh, venerated. You know, the strange thing about history is that it's uh, it lowers people and it raises people so that uh, you have to wait a while for the verdict to come in. And many people who in their lifetime were considered to be uh, outstanding, great, influential uh, in the run of history are lowered. And many people who in their lifetime uh, suffered the indignities and were not very well respected in the run of history are raised. He is the example of someone who was, so to speak, rehabilitated uh, and the rehabilitation begins with the Gone of Vilna and it culminates in the Musser movement of the 18, middle 1800s, late 1800s in Lithuania and the Lithuanian yeshivot. After he was rehabilitated, so to speak, so then he became popular. So not only this book, which is the main book, 
but his other works as well, which are even more controversial, are today studied uh, universally. And uh, I would hazard to say that most of the people who read it or study it or who teach it are unaware of the fact that it's a controversial work. So uh, we can say uh, heaven voted for him. And uh, heaven usually has the last vote in all of these things. Now the book, the Mesilat Yeshorim, the Gon of Vilna said, in the first ten chapters he said, there's not an extra word. The book is a, a marvelous work of conciseness. And we can also say that the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Litzato, to a certain extent, is the father of modern Hebrew. He does not write rabbinic Hebrew. The Hebrew that he writes is pure. It's a throwback almost to Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah or to the Mishnah itself, that type of Hebrew. But again, uh, the structure of the Hebrew and the structure of the sentence uh, makes it uh, a harbinger, a forerunner of modern Hebrew uh, as we uh, know it today. So there, just the language itself uh, is itself a major thing in the book. I want to share with you his introduction to the book because the introduction uh, is a classic. Uh, in the yeshivas, they used to say, uh, my Rebbe used to say, well, he said, if you don't want to study the book, at least study the introduction. Because the introduction says it all. And here I'm reading to you a, a translation by Yosef uh, uh, Liebler. There are many translations into almost every language in the world. It's one of the most translated books uh, of all of the Jewish books in the world. It's been translated into French, into Spanish, to Russian. And uh, here is the English version of it. The author says, I have written this book not to teach people what they do not know, but rather to remind them of what they already know and clearly understand. And uh, that's the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book is that I'm going to tell you everything that you yourself know. But for some reason, because of your uh, selective memory, uh, because of the fact that uh, it's inconvenient to remember these things, uh, so you put it out of your mind. So I'm here to remind you. For within most of my words you will find general rules of life that most people know with certainty. However, the degree that these rules are well known and are truth self-evident, to that degree are they routinely overlooked or people choose to forget about them altogether. You know, so we know, you know, we're not supposed to holler at our wives, right? Or we know that, uh, you know, you're not supposed to uh, shortchange somebody. Or there's a million things that we know. But somehow when it comes to doing these things, we're not in, the con in control of ourselves. So this is a book about self-control, about self-discipline. And really it's a book about being a good human being. Therefore, the benefit to be obtained from this book cannot be derived from a single reading. 
but it can be derived from a single lecture. <laughs> For it is possible that after just one reading, the reader will find that he has learned little that he didn't know before. So then what does he need the book for? Rather, its benefit is a function of continuous review. In this manner, one is reminded of those things which by nature people are prone to forget. And he will take to heart the duties that he prefers to overlook. His famous example really the classic example, he says, uh, you can imagine yourself in a maze. Now, uh, one of the uh, uh, sports of kings in the medieval and even later times was to construct a maze. A maze is, uh, you know, uh, a hundred different paths. You come into the maze and then you lose your way, and how do you find your way out? Uh, if you go to Hampton Court Palace of Henry VIII, there's a maze there that uh, I got lost in. There, at least, at 4 o'clock, they send somebody to fetch you. <laughs> but uh, the, a maze was used many times as a, uh, a means of execution of people. They would take the prisoner and let him go in the maze, and uh, he got lost in it. He starved to death. He, uh, he died of thirst. They never came to fetch him. So he says, this world is a maze. I think that's where the world, word amazing comes from. It's the same word. It's, uh, we're all caught in a maze, and every day we make decisions. Take this path, take this path. The end of the maze is naturally our judgment, uh, what heaven thinks of us. How did we get out of the maze? Or did we get lost in the maze? He says the only way to attack a maze, and that you know, I also saw this in the palace in Copenhagen in Denmark. So there they have a tower by the maze. You climb the tower, you're able to see how to get out, right? Because you have this overview and you see which are the paths that will lead you out of the maze. So he says here, this book is the tower to the maze. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to instruct you how to get out of this maze of life that we are all involved in and how to find our way. Now, where do we want to find our way to? So here he says there's an amazing b'risa. There's an amazing piece in the Talmud, in the Maseches Avodah Zorah, written by Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer is one of the resident holy men of the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer was such a righteous person that even his donkey would not eat straw uh, that did not, uh, that the tithe, that the truma and the maestras were not taken from it. He had a donkey that only ate badats. 
it knew exactly what it was. So the Gemara always says, Ma behemtam shel tzaddikim. You can see that even the dumb animals of the righteous are endowed with an intuition as to what is right and what is wrong and don't uh, make mistakes. So the righteous, certainly, we have to consider them in that vein. So Reb Pinchas ben Yoyer is buried uh, in the new cemetery in Malot, at the, uh, not in Tzvat, uh, at the bottom. The old cemetery is on top, and he's buried at the bottom. Next to him are buried the 11 girls that were killed in Malot by the Arab terrorists about 20 years ago, if not more. And there are many customs regarding the grave of Repinchas ben Yoyer. It's a very visited grave. So Repinchas ben Yoyer, who does not appear in the Talmud in very many instances, there's very little halacha that's quoted from him in the Talmud. But he said this b'risa, very interesting b'risa. He describes the steps that lead a person to holiness. That's the b'risa. You want to be kadosh, you want to be holy, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you cannot just get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to be holy. Like you can't get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm a brain surgeon. Or today I'm going to run the marathon. In order to do any of that, you need training. You need experience. You have to be able to do it. I had the people in my shul in Muncie that ran the New York marathon every year, but they would run 60 miles every week. So if you run 60 miles every week, so then you got a chance to run the 26 miles of the marathon. But if you get up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to run the marathon, right, then you're, you resemble me, you're not going to make it. It just is not going to happen. So Pepinchas ben Yoyer says the same thing is true about holiness. A Jew wants to be holy, I'm going to tell you how. And here it is. The first thing is Torah. That's the starting point. Knowledge of Torah. Torah mivia lidei zehirus. Torah brings one to being careful, to being vigilant. Leads one to being, uh, uh, not to take unnecessary risks in life. Zehirus mivia lidei zrizus. Then vigilance brings one to zrizus, to enthusiasm, to alacrity, to industry, to work at it. Then zrizus mevialide nikias. That brings a person to cleanliness. He means here spiritual cleanliness, though he talks about physical cleanliness as well. Then nikias mevialide precious. Cleanliness can bring a person to abstain from certain things in life that are not good for him. Precious may violate tahara, then that abstinence can bring one to purity. Tahara may violate chesidus, then one comes to the level of piety. Chesidus may violate anova, piety brings a person to humility. 
Humility brings a person to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings a person to holiness. Holiness brings one to Ruach HaKodesh, the divine inspiration. So that's the Brisa of Repinchas Ben Yoya. The book takes every one of those attributes, every one of those concepts, and defines them for us. So there are three sections in every one. First is a definition. Secondly is how do we do it in practice? The third thing is what brings us to aspire and to want to have those attributes. So I'm not going to go through all of uh, this uh, book, all of these things, but there are selected parts that are just so uh, brilliant in the language, etc., that uh, everyone should, uh, as he says, uh, assimilate it within one's own psyche and within one's own soul and repeat it over and over again because it will be a step up the ladder. It will get us up the tower that will be able to us to see how to get out of the maze. This, by the way, was in the, in the, was the primer of the Musser movement. Uh, if you saw Salanter and the Musser movement, and especially how it was in the yeshivas, I remember when I was in the yeshiva yet, uh, we devoted uh, 15, 20 minutes every day to the study of this book. And uh, by the, the, uh, the Bali Musser held that this is the book that more than any other work defines what it is to be a good Jew. Uh, when I was the head of the yeshiva in Muncie, uh, I would teach this book 15 minutes a day to uh, about 100 unwilling students. But over the years, I have received many, many comments. Rebbe, I remember what you said. I remember this. I remember that. Because Rabbi Merrill Wine, on the topic of Mesilas Yesharim, we are going to begin our show tomorrow with this lecture and uh, bring it to its conclusion at that time. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a, uh, what is today, Wednesday here at JM and the AM is the nine days continue. Tomorrow we're back starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.